Welcome to the Endless Pursuit Podcast. Where we talk all things hunting and the great outdoors. And here's your hosts, Dodge, Matt and Kyle. Welcome back to Endless Pursuit Podcast. We've got the uh, biggest crew we've had in tonight. Special guest Ben Unton joining us with Mick Matheson. Um, regular crew is here as well, Matt, Kyle and Dodge. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thanks very much, mate. Good to be here. So, being spread out a little bit, the plan was both Mick and Ben were going to be at my place. Uh, i got a few things planned this weekend. We'll get into that in a minute. But uh, unfortunately, as Ben does, he pulls out at the last minute. Uh, that is not true. If only that were true, I wouldn't have so many children. No, my darling wife is sick. So unfortunately, I'm looking after the tin lids. And so I couldn't make it. Wish I could be there. But uh, this is the next best thing. I was going to say, can you give me some tips? Like maybe I should have pulled out the twins. Yeah, quite yeah if you've got three, yeah, yours is a little bit too late. Yeah. In fact, it was just a tip that might have been all right. You're probably going to have to trim that. I've already started badly. And listen, can I just say, this is a dangerous time of night to be recording a podcast. I'm a tradie, right? It's half past eight on a Friday night, and we all had an early start. Anyway, carry on. This could get messy. Go on. Sorry, cut that out. <laughs> Obviously, you haven't heard our last episode when Dodge was in WA drinking. It was quite messy, and yeah. we found out he can't handle his alcohol. I was going to say, yeah. Dodge had only started about half an hour before the podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, um, when you but say... But was three, well on his way. Yeah, it was halfway through his first one. Oh, I'm off my tree. Yeah. Yeah, there's probably only three people in this world that have seen me pretty drunk. Ben's one of them. And, uh, yeah, we've had some fun. I did offer a nice glass of wine tonight over dinner, but he declined. So I think... Total waste, Mick. Save the cooking sherry for him. Total waste. Don't give him anything nice. Rubbish. Waste of time. But also, is there such thing as a nice glass of wine? But oh, absolutely. It all tastes like crushed grapes to me. Well, the, the whiskey last week you mixed with Coke and ice, so. Can you put yeah, ice with wine and mix it with something else? You could, but you wouldn't want to because you'd probably, well, no. No, that's that's a whole other podcast that's not worth going into. Right on. What, what we're here for, mixed down this weekend, is a bit of background on Mick. He's current uh, editor of Sporting Shooter magazine, and he's come down this weekend to be a guest speaker at our Christmas in July in August function at, at our local hunting club. So it's uh, that was the reason for the initial visit. And then a bit of history, we've been up to his place hunting a few times, Central West, New South Wales, out that way. And he cheekily said to me when I invited him down, he said, no worries, any chance of a return hunt while I'm down there? So he's come down three weeks before the event just to spend three weeks hunting and scouting. No, he's... Uh, we're going to so go. I don't regard that as cheeky at all. I mean, it's due. You, what you should have done when you said was, do you want to come down for a hunt, mate? And by the way, we've <laughs> got this club thing on. No, no. What do you do? Come down and do some work. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I had to demand a hunt. It's advertising. <laughs> it's all advertising. But uh, And then, Ben, on the other side, we all sort of met. I think you guys probably met first through the shot show system. Yeah, it was all around the same time through the uh, the shot shows um, when we were all working there. Yeah. And uh, you were working, I think, uh, helping Eagle Eye at the time. Yep. And Ben and I were doing videos for the Shot Expo. So we were running around interviewing all the different people on different stands and putting videos together and putting them out on YouTube, which was a hell of a lot of fun. It was good. It was. And Facebook and a pretty, Live. Yeah, Facebook Live. That was tricky. Yeah, you had yeah, some one of your funniest guests you had on, uh, The Sorcerer. Oh, Do you remember him in, in Auckland? Yeah, with the hot sauces. Oh, so that was <laughs> he was hilarious. So yes, yeah, so we we covered. Do you remember his the, line? Uh, no, go on. 
You remember better than me. There was too many people to interview over. Uh, he I produced guess- a homemade Worcestershire sauce, which is actually just made out of fermented onions, if you really look into it. And he said it's, you know, good on everything. You eat. Wheat bix and your woman, or something. Didn't you say, yeah. "Yep, everything from your wheat bix to your wife." Yeah. I think and that actually, cracked Ben up. He nearly yeah, lost control. Yeah, <laughs> I met I met the pair of them, and I suspect that's probably true. But that was, we were over. So Matho and I've done. I was trying to think. Has it got to be ten years worth of expos? Seven, eight years worth of expos that we covered? A sort of sole media, at least. Um, me in front of the camera and you behind it with your partner around doing all the fabulous stuff, editing all those bits and pieces. But that was, we also. It, it felt f- like 10 years working with you, but it was actually only about four. I think we did. Yeah, He's made that up, but spread out over a longer time period. But that was in New Zealand that flew us across. We're international now, men of mystery. That was actually the New Zealand. I was trying to think what it's called. CIFR is the shooting. So I can't remember the organizations over there. There's another one that sounds like MoFo. Can you remember what it was? <laughs> no, no. What, it's, it's the, no, it was a different organization. Yeah, no, that was a private one that didn't go through a organization. No, no, there's well, there was the legal anyway, legal something over there in New Zealand. I had to say all the time to interviewing all these people, I know I sound funny, I'm not the one who sounds funny. Six pounds of fush and all that carry on, anyway. It was a fun time, good times. The best part about that trip was the dinner we went to. The other, the reason I actually met these guys is. Like Mick said, I was working with Eagle Eye at the time on his booth selling his stuff. And the owner of Eagle Eye really enjoys throwing a dinner party. And he hosted pretty much every shot show. He'd have at least one dinner, if not two. And sometimes you'd have 20 or 30 people there. And uh, the Auckland one was one of the funniest and also probably the best food. Mm. If you guys agree with that. It was a Chinese restaurant in which everybody else except us was Chinese. So you knew it had to be a good <laughs> yeah. Chinese restaurant. And it was. We It was riotous. And I think by the end of it, uh, they were happy to see the back of us. We were just so loud. That was a good time. And what are you you blokes doing in um, you know, the hunting industry now? Like, uh, Ben, what are you you doing at the moment? So I've, uh, Matho and I are in theory uh, enemies at the moment. I've been writing for the Dubbers Double A for 15 years. Uh, uh, I saw your article the other day reviewing boots. Uh, okay, yes. Well, yeah. I think the issue before that, if I'm to blow my own trumpet, and I am, was front cover, second time in 15 years. But at this stage, by the time I'm 80, I'll have four of them. Anyway, so, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a regular contributor there. That's how I sort of got on to um, doing all the media um, front of camera stuff for the Shot Expose and the promotion, all those sort of bits and pieces. Um, so I'm still regularly writing, but no shot exposed for the last two years. So anyway, that's how Matthew and I met, and then I'll throw to him because for his story. And while he works for the WSAA, the Sporting Shooters Association, I edit Sporting Shooter Magazine, which has nothing to do with the WSAA. Um, and that's why we're mortal enemies in media as such. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, competing magazines. I took over... Sporting shooter earlier this year when Marcus O'Dean left after I think 14, 15 years. And it's it's good fun. I, my background is editing magazines. It's what I've done for all of my career, mostly motorcycle magazines, a full drive magazine, and a few other smaller ones in between. And now to get back into editing a, a paper magazine again uh, is fantastic fun. I really enjoy it. As much as I'm a shooter and a hunter, uh, I'm also a magazine person, just love it. So I'm in my element at the moment, having a lot of fun. Talking yeah, about a, shooting. Sorry, you go. I was just going to say it's an interesting career and, um, yeah, wide range of, like, subjects that interest us blokes. And, yeah, I've read both of those magazines. Um, but sorry, Ben, I've been reading Sporting Shooter since I was about 14 probably. Um, yeah, and I've yeah, loved it. 
You know, it's probably a good opportunity for me to say that you just have the most fabulous and interesting voice. Nothing you say is interesting, but the voice is just made for podcast as opposed to, say, Dodge, who's got a head for podcast. Anyway, sorry, carry on interrupted. Go on. Anyway, as I was saying, just saying it's a good magazine. Both good magazines. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. They are. Yeah. And um, how do you guys? Hunting. Dodge, it's far away. Talking about, talking about the hunting side of it, Mick, do you do much hunting yourself now still? Yeah, yeah. Um, mostly on my own place, which is, I must admit, not the greatest hunting block in the world, but there's plenty of goats there, huge numbers of goats. I can go and get a goat anytime I want. Uh, there's a few rabbits around, a few foxes, a few cats naturally, and the odd deer. Before the drought, we were just seeing good numbers of deer, and now they've all vanished again, and they're, they're yet to come back in big ways. Uh, and with all the wet, there's a few pigs around, and there's this one pig that frustrates me more than having Ben work for the opposition. And that's I've seen it under a thermal outside the house about six times up the hill from the house recently. Every time I go and chase it, I follow it up there with a thermal, get out there with the light and the torch because I haven't got a thermal on a, on a rifle at the moment and lose it. It just goes every time. I'll get it eventually. But, yeah, that's yeah, I do. So I do a lot of hunting and everything. I just love hunting any kind of animal. I don't care what it is. And I'm just as happy to go spotlighting out of a car as I am to go stalking through forests and marshes and everything else. All good I just would like to interject there and say that I have been very, very fortunate enough to have been to Matho's block up there hunting. When you say it's not the best hunting block in the world, just with deer, pigs, goats, foxes, rabbits, the occasional cat, maybe a dog, just want to know what a good one Bloody Wool has. Holy smoke. <laughs> it's a bit like state forests. So I listen to the podcast talking about state forests and how you can walk forever and see nothing. It's a bit like that. I do a lot more walking than I do shooting. I I've never been to your place and not shot some. I interject with what you're saying because Matt would love any property with any of those things. I was just about to say when you said about state forests, oh, I have not been in too many state forests with that list of species that you've got running around up there. Well, they're all there. You're just too loud. You don't see them. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, maybe it was the early days of state forest hunting, but um, I, when I was in Sydney, I used to escape most weekends when I could for a long period of time and go hunting in the forest within about three hours' drive of Sydney, usually west. What was your um, favourite? was... Almost productive. Most productive was the one out towards uh, Blaney. What's that one called? Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. State Forest. That was good. But there was a few of them around there. You'd always have a chance at rabbits and foxes. It was always good. There were goats in most of them. Um, got my first red deer uh, not far from uh, Hampton, in, in Hampton State Forest. So, yeah, I always saw plenty of game and everything else. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say that back in those days, at least in State Forest, it was good. Maybe it's not quite the same now. Maybe the, the hunter's numbers have increased. I'm sure they have, yeah. Have you pinged State Forest, Ben? Yeah, very limited success. It just um, there's plenty around where I am, and they're vast. And you know, you, you could like you could spend a long time walking or wanting to bump into things and trying to find out where they are. But yeah, so I have had very limited success in the state forest. Geez, that makes me feel better. Yep. No, same as you, mate. Bloody lousy. I came across some either goat or sheep sign. It's almost impossible to tell the difference, and that's about as close as I ever got. A really. Yeah, not much, not much luck. Not for they're not there, just not wherever I could come across all the creeks and the water holes and checking the stuff on, uh, you know, e-scouting as they call it. There's just, there's too much water around with animals too spread out. And yeah, it's the same old story. And where are you based, Ben? Roughly? Yeah, Midwest. Funnily enough, yeah. Matthew and I are in the same area, but not all that close together. I don't know, three hours apart or something like that. Right. 
question from Matho is, um, and this goes back to what Matt's been trying to achieve and access to private property. You've never, from the time I've known, you've never said no to me coming up. And I know I've sent, you know, some friends of mine up there to your place. You've always welcomed and, and accepted that. Is that, why do you do it? Is that, well, I don't know. No, I don't want to well, ask that because I'm happy you do it. But <laughs> if it's people I know, uh, then that's good. And they're word of mouth, basically. If you recommend somebody, then I'll give that person a chance. But if somebody comes and knocks on the door, the answer has always been, sorry, we do our own hunting here. And so I'm a little bit different from a lot of the farmers out there who do have places in that I do my own hunting and so I'm protected off my block for that reason. Uh, But I'll share it with those people I know. I think most people run into the problem of going to properties where the farmer might not necessarily hunt, but they also don't want people they don't know hunting there for different reasons. So, yeah, I'm just being protective because I want the game. They're being protective because they just don't trust people with guns on their property that they don't know. Sorry, question. Have you yeah, had much trouble with poachers up there, Matho? There's been hints of it. Most of it's actually been neighbours. Yeah. I've found been. a couple of dead roos on my place, which were headshot from across the creek over the boundary. But I know that when it happened, they were younger, inexperienced hunters who were just desperate to get something and push boundaries, literally. But in terms of poachers coming on, no, not a big problem there. I suspect there have been some. In fact, I know there's been pig doggers through, mm-hmm. and that I'm not at all happy about. But I wouldn't call it a problem. They've just been through. The property, I mean, we've always, I don't know whether I was told this or we've just always done it, but it's a, it's a property where we'd go and take one or two or it's not a go and shoot up 20 goats. You could mm. easily go and shoot 20 or 30 goats in a session some days yeah. when they're there. There's been times when we've culled as well when the goat numbers have been so big that it's ridiculous. So you just go out there with a big pocket full of ammo and shoot as many as you can. But most of the time it's it's just good hunting, yeah. It's been good for your footage too. And do you get any good um, heads out of the billies up there or is it sort of just yeah. good meat animals? Or? Yeah, everything. Um, the good heads are few and far between because there's enough pressure on them, not just from me but from other places. And we've got one guy who's south of us who rounds up goats Uh, And between us, there's this incredible gorge country that's just chock-a-block with inaccessible gullies and stuff where goats breed. But if they go his way, he rounds them up and sells them. And since he started doing that, there are fewer trophies around because, of course, mostly it's the big billies that they ship out and they'll let a few of the nannies go. But I know that there's been, before I owned the place, uh, there were some goats that were shot and mounted that won trophies. Uh, for the taxidermy. So, yeah, it's good. There's some good goats around. Wasn't yeah. it uh, Ace from Eagle Eye? Shot a, like a 40-inch or a 39? Like it was, yep. it was, we've, we've had... That's a big... And he was a first-time yeah. shooter or something up there. Yeah, that's right. He didn't understand what he'd shot. No. No. Didn't comprehend the size of that. Yeah, there's been a couple of 40 inches shot in the time that we've had the place, which is about 10 years. And there's one bloke, he came up and he watched these two goats for months and months and months and assessed them as best he could. And he, he swore, yep, they're 40 inches. He said they're just 40 inches, but that's it. And so he got them both. One was 39 and a half. The other was 39 and three quarters. But neither of them actually went 40. Okay. <laughs> Greedy. Could have given another year. <laughs> and as you say, it's getting harder and harder to find those good um, goat trophies these days with yeah, the mustering out west. Yeah, that's um, the biggest thing. That that's changed everything with goat hunting. Yeah, they're worth so much on the hoof now. Yep. You can't blame yeah. them. Yeah, and the, yeah, that's money for nothing. They're not, you know, not vaccinating, not fencing. It's something that's just yep. generating there. Well, not nothing. They've, they've still got to herd them and 
and pull them in and build the yards and that sort of ship them out. But definitely rewarding from a farmer's point of view. Yeah, through a the mate has a, a goes out to Whitecliffs to an old friend's farm out there uh, on a regular basis, and he watched three. Uh, truckloads of stock getting shipped out one time. One was full of cattle, one was full of sheep, and one was full of goats, and they were all worth equal amounts of money each truckload. Wow. So, yeah, the goats are good, definitely. Yeah, through the drought, it really um, kept a lot of those um, far west stations going. And when I uh, lived and worked in Broken Hill, I was like on the at one point on the main road um, out of Broken Hill, and it was just truckload after truckload of goats going to the abattoir some days. Mm, yep. It'd be nice to draft out the big ones and send them to a private property yeah. somewhere. One of my uh, many, many failures as a hunter was driving 34 hours as a round trip to a place on the southwestern corner of Queensland. And about three weeks before, they'd done a huge, it was a huge property, they'd done a huge goat muster to the point where when you rode the quads past the yards, you could actually smell the goats in the soil. And we didn't see it. Th- we got one pig. 34-hour round trip. I didn't even see it. My mate Country shot it. I call him Country because it's the only nickname in Australia you can't shorten. But he shot, actually, he's got a son who's big. He's big Country. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He um, he shot the only pig we saw. And for that entire, we hunted hard every day uh, for seven days, 34-hour round trip, and, yeah, not a single goat, one pig. It was just, yeah, hard, hard yakka. But I couldn't blame the farmer. The, the live price for him was just off the charts. And, so he'd mustered them all three weeks before. Just for a time reference, I've hunted hard with Ben too. It usually starts at 10 a.m. and ends at lunchtime. That's <laughs> a Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, not long before he, what does he call it? Switches over to the dark side and ends up in the rums just after lunch. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking um, about. You, you mentioned earlier off air, Matho, that you'd, you'd been on a hunt recently and did something you hadn't done before. Yeah, that's right. Um, went up to Cooktown to do some scrub bull hunting. And so for the first time in my experience, I flew with a rifle. So I took a rifle to Sydney Airport. And, um, of course, you know, big roll of toilet paper in the back pocket just in case because um, I was, yeah, crapping myself over the whole thought of it, you know. The paranoia over having a gun in public these days is pretty big, but walking into a controlled place like an airport, that just terrified me. So I had it, done all my research, had it all properly presented, so it was inoperable, trigger locks, bolt separated, ammo in a separate lock box in the in the other luggage, all the, all the stuff you've got to do, have my ammo permit, and... Walked up to initially walked up to the special baggage counter and said, I've got a rifle to check in. And they said, Oh, well, that's right. You can't go to one of the uh, check in machines. You've got to go and check in face to face. So go and join the queue. So I lined up for half an hour with the queue in the airport, cradling my rifle in its case, um, expecting any minute to be crash tackled by the right squad or something like that. Um, had a fantastic conversation with a bloke who was just back from Chile and was on waiting for his connecting flight to Brisbane, checking in for that. Um, surrounded by all these other people, none of whom batted an eyelid as I stood there with a rifle. I think most of them didn't know what was in the case. I thought it was a trombone or something. And um, so that was all good. And we shuffled forward, got to the front of the queue, walked up to the bloke who was checking me in, who uh, I said, I've got a rifle. And he said, oh, right, no worries. He said, where are you going? I said, oh, cans for this flight. And he said, oh, is there something on in cans? I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, we had six blokes with guns this morning and another two later on. And to him, it was just another conversation piece, just another interesting thing that was happening at the airport. So it was all good. He didn't even check the rifle. It was all locked. He took well, my word for it. They're not allowed to. Oh, well, there you go. I didn't know that. Well, they're not licensed. They well, can't handle. 
no, but he can look at it, he can inspect it. But he, he took my word for it. So this is all good. Um, checked it in, told somebody down in the depths of the airport that he was checking through rifle and ammunition and my name and the flight number. And that was it. And it was waiting for me at the other end. And coming back was just as easy. And in fact, coming back, when I went to collect my rifle, there were three others waiting there to be collected. So yeah, it's far more common than people think. And it was actually a good experience with the rifle in public. One of the rare ones I can say was good. It's interesting you're saying that because uh, I was reading something on Facebook today where they were essentially saying, I can't remember who posted it, but they've had three people over the last couple of weeks have safe storage inspections and their safes have been over 150 kilos and not bolted down, which they don't have to be. And the police officers going through it uh, were unaware of the actual requirements and they've had their guns confiscated and they're in the process of going through the courts and everything to get them back and you know one of the things from that was that make sure you have the I guess the firearms requirements printed out to show the inspectors because there was there's obviously been a couple of incidents now where they're unaware of some of the legalities behind it so just listening to you talking about going through the airports and them wanting to look at it I was under the impression that you know, my wife doesn't even know where my safe keys are because she's unlicensed and I'm going to keep it that way. But it's interesting opening it up to show someone who you don't know if they're licensed or what like that. I don't think that would fly personally. I think showing them is one thing. You're but not, not allowed to open it in a public space. Yes, yeah, not allowed to open it in public space. So it's, I find it ironic that Qantas staff will be more aware of gun laws as it matters than the police who are inspecting a safe. That's not right. That's not on at all. Two quick things there. I was going to ask you who you flew with, Matho, and Qantas, yes, good experience. I had a terrible experience, but I just wanted to go to, to you, Matt. I don't want to know the suburbs or anything, but was that in the city that that happened that these people, I, and I assume they're just Category A, Category B licensed? Yeah, that was correct. I believe they didn't give us suburbs, but from the site that was on is generally in the Sydney region. Okay, because I know, so I originally, I'm originally from Sydney, moved out, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, and um. Such a different attitude in the country to it. Such a different attitude. I had, I've had a lot of, I've had firearms for a long time. I've had multiple safe inspections. On the whole, really not a problem, but it was just, I had one police officer who was just doing his job in Sydney and said, I need to check if this safe complies. I said, well, this is like the fourth time I've had it inspected. Nothing's changed. Um, I need to check. And I said, well, righto, what do I do till then? We'll do nothing. And I'll, and it was one of these, He's got the manifest in front of him and I own multiple firearms. And when I open the, the safe at his request and all done slowly again, I've done this dance a few times and he made a noise as if it was sort of shock. Like, Oh, this is a bit, shock. well, mate, you're looking at the list of them right in front of you. what do you think was going to be in here? Bunyips. Anyway, he, he then called me back about three days later and said, um, I've checked and you're, you're safe. It just complies. I said, well, what do you mean? It just complies. I knew it complied. And you know, I sort of, I had the SH1Ts a little bit and just said, well, you mean like just being pregnant? Like either the thing complies or it doesn't and it complies. He said, I'll put a husband staple on it. Well, it just complies. It doesn't. It complies, mate. It just does. Anyway, very different experience when you move to the country. Uh, yeah, I, I've never never been bad and he wasn't a problem or, or it was just doing his job. I'm not having to go at him, but just a different attitude in the city to the country I've noticed anyway. It takes me back to one of my best mates. He, you know, silly mistake, let his gun license expire. 
and he had obviously firearms and had them stored at home in the safe. He'd had a check previously, it was all good. But it takes me to the story because he, obviously, once your firearms licence expires, he can't actually touch or handle the weapons. And he rang the local police station and said to them, my licence is expired, I've got these rifles here, you need to come and collect them. And they actually said, oh, mate, you just grab them, throw them in a bag and take them in. Now, he was smart enough to go, hmm, I don't know about that. I think I'll make another call. And he ended up getting in touch with the um, inspector or one of the head inspectors for firearms in the region. And that person said, mate, I'm really glad you didn't grab them because if you grabbed them and took them in, you are handling a firearm without a licence and you'd never get your licence back and most definitely not your firearms. So very interesting. And look, it is a tough gig. I guess, for police officers because there's so much legislation and rules to be across. And a lot of the times from what I'm hearing, it's general duties guys coming out for an inspection, especially here in Sydney. They've got so much to know. They're not firearms experts. I don't think that's a legitimate excuse. Fair enough. We've got a lot to know too, and we are given no leeway. It's black and white for us. We've either compliant or we're not. And if we're not, we can lose our firearms for 10 years. I don't think that we should put up with the fact that the police can get away with being so wrong and there's no comeback to them and not even an apology to us. You know, guys who've got their saves properly uh, set up, 150 kilos not bolted down and some copper gets it wrong and that's all fine except for the shooter, how can that work? That's not right. Especially from the financial point of view because I'm guessing you then going and having to pay for solicitors, lawyers and and the rest, that's not cheap and well, they're not paying it out of their salary or their wage when they've made a, a mistake, whether it be an honest mistake or not. I can see if I was in that position, I'd be very, very frustrated. Yeah, they can't have it both ways. I had a conflicting story to yours, Matt. Um, just recently, a friend of mine's licence was going to lapse and he didn't want it back, so that was fine. I don't know what was going through his head when he wanted to do that, but he's a change of life and direction and didn't need it. The thing was he had a firearm and, he, you know, he wants to change it over into my name. That's fine. But we left it a bit late and I had none of PTA and whatnot. So we just went to a, a local dealer to transfer that into his name. So then I could get a PTA and it could come back into my name. And we left it like his license expired that night. And we explained the situation and the dealer said, not an issue. As long as you ring me and tell me you're coming, you can bring a firearm the same thing as if you're taking an unregistered vehicle to get registered, as long as you've got a booking and you're going from A to B direct, he was on the impression that it's not an issue. And he said, it's no different to someone bringing an old unregistered firearm to me to be destroyed. He said, as long as they ring up and tell me they're bringing it, it's like a no questions asked amnesty type thing. As long as he's going there, he's not using it along the way. So it's a tricky one. I wouldn't want to chance it. No, I'd, I'd be the same. And Dodge is right. The dealer's right too, but it's a grey area, so it's one you don't want to risk. The easy way to deal with a situation like that is before the licence expires or if it has expired, somebody with a licence simply takes the firearm to a dealer, puts it in storage there, it's transferred into the possession of the dealer in the process and the registry is happy with that and yes. no one gets into any trouble. So As dealers much. are your best friends when you're in any situation with unregistered firearms or expired licences or anything else like that. Get the firearm to the dealer and there it's safe is. there and nobody has any risk. 
and you can then deal with how to get it all back to where it needs to be or anything afterwards. For the cost of, what, $30 or whatever storage fees are. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, the dealer is your best friend with when it comes to that because they can legitimately deal with those situations by simply transferring the fire and, uh, firearm onto their books. And the quick story there is I had a, um, a good friend of mine in Sydney. is an older gentleman. His brother was on a farm and he passed away in an accident and he had a twenty two Magnum. And his sister, so my mate's, uh, sorry, his wife, my mate's sister-in-law said, uh, do you want this? He said, look, I'm not licensed, but I've got a, a mate in the Midwest who I'll talk to him about it. And I said, yes, of course, um, be very happy because it was significant to my mate. So I said, but I've got no idea about how the wife who is not licensed is going to transport it out to me because it's about, she was up in far northern New South Wales. It was a 12-hour trip that she would have this firearm. Anyway, she got some sort of, like you said, Dodge, she got some sort of temporary something, something. Permission um, slip. Yep, and she drove to the. We drove to the same spot, and the dealer there knew about it, and we transferred it over. And again, she didn't get stopped by police for any reason at all. I mean, obviously not because of that, but a random stop or whatever. But she was under the impression that it was legal, or we could have called the dealer and he could have smoothed. I was nothing to do with me because I'm licensed and I had a PTA, and I went down there to pick it up, and we transferred it over. Yeah, when it comes to estates, uh, basically the executor of the will uh, can and this is a very loose description of it, it's not exactly how it works, but they effectively act as uh, a licensed firearms dealer or owner when it comes to the weapons within that estate. There, and there's something like six months in which that can happen. So it's it's probably absolutely legitimate what was happening there. I don't know if you've seen that meme on Facebook, but it makes me go straight to it that uh, the greatest fear is the wife selling the guns for what uh, you know you told them you paid for. Because, geez, <laughs> I think all of mine would be sold for about a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Love it. Definitely a scary moment. It's possibly worth um, interjecting here that Matho has worked in a firearm shop and uh, is very knowledgeable in this area. As something of an authority about it. Just for the, for the a question for you all. And Ben pointed out that that friend of his travelled and wasn't picked up or wasn't stopped. If you were to be stopped just randomly for an RBT on the way back from a hunting trip and you had a firearm in the car, would you offer that information to the policeman? Nope. No, never, ever offer any information to the police, especially when it comes to firearms, unless you're asked. The offer then opens you up to them uh, misinterpreting laws about safe stories, whatever it may be. Um, you're better off just flying under the radar. And the critical thing is when it comes to transporting firearms in a car, they've not only got to be inoperable and locked in the vehicle when you're away from it, but out of sight as well. So there's no need for a copper to actually see unless they do a search of the car. It's but only question, if you're searched that it will Question there, Matthew. Does in, a, in say, a, a black nondescript gun bag, and I've never been able to get a definitive answer to this, does that qualify? Is that out of sight? It's in a gun bag, but it looks like a gun bag to everyone in this podcast. Exactly. And I would argue that that means that your gun is visible because there's what looks like a gun bag. There's probably a gun in it. Therefore, break the window and steal it. That's the the way the, the crooks are going to think. The best way to approach all of these questions is to think of it in terms of can you stand there and look the policeman in the eye and say, I did everything I possibly could to avoid that firearm being stolen. And if you don't believe that you can honestly say that, well, you're not doing it well enough. You need to do something differently. If you can honestly say that, there's still a risk because your firearm got stolen and you were responsible for it, but at least you've done all you think you can do. An interesting one there is always sort of reflect on it that we talk about 
hunting brings so much financial benefits to sort of smaller country towns and things like that. But if you go, if you go on a hunting trip and you go into the pub for a feed and you leave the rifle in the car, I mean, it's a very grey area. Have you really done everything you can to make sure it can't get stolen if you've left it in the car and gone in for a feed at the pub for dinner? Yeah. I think the, the sort of key words is, uh, uh, you know, within reason. Like, what's reasonable? We need to stop and get fuel. You need to go to the toilet. If it's, you know, more than a couple of hours, you need to stop and have something to eat. You know, they say don't drive more than two hours without having a break and, you know, something to eat and drink and stuff like that. So that's where, on the other hand, taking all reasonable precautions, like Matho said, you know, did you park the car right out front where you can see it from the establishment? You know, did you double check that it's locked? I know if I'm going to leave my, you know, firearms in the car for more than, you know, two minutes, I have a, not even like a bike lock. It's it's more than that. It's like a, a cable that actually runs through either my hard case or if I'm using a soft case, I'll run it through either the action or the um, between the scope and the action and lock it into the car. So you can't just smash and grab. You'd have to have, you know, bolt cutters or something like that to actually remove Doesn't the law say that you can't leave firearms unattended in a vehicle like that that's i mean we all know that you have to as you just said it's not revive survive every two hours but so you've left it unattended in a vehicle i mean i don't know from what i understand there's it's a big gray area there's not even a specific legislation for category a and b um they have the specific legislation for category c firearms like semi-autos and we're expected to try to adhere to that or do our best um to that i think it's really interesting because whilst the the laws state all these things i look and reflect now that look at all the handheld power tools that are battery operated it's pretty easy to get a battery operated angle grinder and i don't think it really matters how good your chain is in your car that's pretty quick to get through and quite comfortable so it's really tough and then are you saying that we've got to drive around looking for a pub and we can't go to that one because all the car parking spots are taken right outside, so it has to be across the road or down the street. Like, it's it's a very grey, tricky area. I get we've got to do everything we possibly can, and I'm all for that, but, geez, there's some grey wiggle room, and I really and don't want to be put in that it's, position. It's so much up to the interpretation of the officer investigating what's happened as to what the outcome will be. If that officer has the belief that you just did one little bit wrong, well, that's it, you're in the poo and it's going to cost you a lot of money to get out of it. But if you've got a copper who's a bit more sympathetic, well, they don't have to book you for it. They can agree that you did everything you possibly could and they'll go and chase the crooks and get your gun back. That's so much of it just comes down to chance. Kyle's just dropped out. Do you let him back in or do we leave him out? Thank you so much for coming. We appreciate your wonderful velvety voice, but I'm sorry. The answer's no. Uh, Thank you, goodbye and good day. Yeah, good day. Go on, go on. Yeah, go to bed. Your comment about the grinders and things like that, I would put that down to you've like if they're cutting through something to get your gun out, you've done the best you can, apart from sitting in the vehicle with it while that's happening. But um, yeah, I, I don't know about the going to the pub part. I'd be leaning towards trying to get takeaway or or you know go and sit out on the on the veranda on the table closest to your vehicle while you're having dinner. Or yeah, I understand it's not hundred percent that you can do it. All the time, but um, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't go and sit in the back room of a pub with my vehicle out the front, especially when you look like a hunting vehicle. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is uh, they recommend these days that you don't have 
uh, gun or hunting related stickers and stuff all over your car that you don't look like you're a shooter, that keeps you under the radar a lot better. You'd be fine with that, Matt, with the Tarago? Mate, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't come in a four-wheel drive, so I've been looking, but no, it doesn't happen. But you don't go off-road anyway. You only hunt the tracks, don't you? Oh, mate, only bitumen. Aren't you allowed to walk down the bitumen looking for deer? Isn't that what you guys do? Can I get some Whoa. tips? Wait, <laughs> um, what I was going to say... I want to get a segue. Yeah, what I was going to say there <laughs> is imagine... I'm from Sydney, so going out to State Forest, generally it's a quite a, a long drive. Realistically, you're sort of saying I can only take one rifle because I'm not going to take a shotgun even though I might want to use it, say, to whistle in some foxes, but I'm also hunting deer out there because you can't leave it in the car. And you're sure as hell not going to walk around the State Forest carrying two rifles or rifle and shotgun for that reason. So it's a very restricted sort of rules as well. Look, I get it, but it's very interesting. But surely there – so when I go away, I usually travel with a partner, and if we go, we do – I never stop at a pub for lunch. We stop, one person stays with the vehicles, one person goes inside and grabs the coffees and sandwiches, we switch out, someone goes to the bathroom, we're on our way again. But I've hunted State Forest, I've got more than one firearm. It's, again, there's also, Matthew, correct me if I'm wrong, there's something in the laws about, like, I'm using it for its intended purpose. Like, I'm on a hunting trip, I'm expected and allowed to have firearms, Therefore, surely there's, you imagine, but again, there's some gray area there about, well, I've got more than one. As you say, who's going to lug? No one's going to lug. It's unreasonable to lug two of them around plus a pack in the, anywhere. Ridiculous. Still comes down to the interpretation of the copper who's investigating. Um, well, wouldn't it, it would then go to the judge, so, yeah. wouldn't it? It would go to the judge. It would yeah, it'd end up in right. trial somewhere. Yeah. But by the time, by the time you've got a police officer who books you for a perceived wrong, it's then going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah, so whatever hard. happens from there on, you're not going to win. Yeah, I agree. It's a shame. Talking about segues. Oh, see what he did there? Did, look at yeah. that. Smooth. I wish you had a little applause and, button. It was so good. Look at you, you little Remy Warren lookalike you. Yeah, good on you, buddy. Uh, insert applause here, Matt, in the editing. But, I've actually um, got please. it. There we go. It's a proudest moment. Is it? Well done, Love Dodge. It. Yeah, lovely. Uh, just uh, the English teachers on the podcast. How do you spell Segway? Well, S-E-G-U-E, I think. I wrote it the other day and he, wrote, he said, what? What are you talking about? And it's oh, it's an interesting it. word to write. We uh, we had an experience. We got stuck at an airport, talking, not travelling with firearms, but firearms related, travelling with meat. Yep, not a happy rip one. In, rip into that one. No, yep. you're still did a bit not, burned about not that, aren't well. you? So as this is a podcast, which is uh, yeah, radio without pictures in the background of the zoom meeting actually is a chittle, which I hope one of you, two, I've been sitting here craning my neck, trying to get it in the shot. So someone would friggin' ask me about it. But anyway, no one has, it doesn't matter. It's not it was on my list, Ben. It was Thanks, on my Matt. list to ask you about. Appreciate it, buddy. I'll uh, ask about it now. Well, go on now. There's a segue. <laughs> See, I can do your job as well. Dodge, not that hard. Anyway. So we, um, uh, Dodge and I went on a fabulous chittle hunt up in far North in Queensland. Brilliant. Hot as hell. I'm from a very beautifully cold part of Australia and to head up there in March or February, it was just, it was, I don't know if I can say, it was just crutch rot central. Like by the end of the week, people were doing unspeakable things with the cold butter from the refrigerator, trying to reduce chafing. It was just horrendous. Anyway, great trip. So we had stayed up late, done all the butchering. We got quite a number of, uh, of deer and how many kilos of meat? One of the big plastic tubs, which Dodge had advised us to pack, big plastic tub, cable tied it, uh, 20 kilos, 30 kilos, 40 kilos of meat? How many no, it was pushing, no you're, you're overweight, you're pushing 30. Right, and I'd, I'd pre-booked the extra 
uh, oversized baggage and all that. Yep. Showed up at the airport, and so they asked me what's in the, meat in was, the box. Sorry, it was frozen and and cryovac. So I should say that frozen and cryovac. Uh, there was a little condensation on the outside, but that the the person at the check in said, um, "What's in the in the box there?" And I said, "Meat." And she said, "Oh," and I think she said, "Is it game meat?" And I said, "What does that matter?" Not trying to be a smart a, eh? but just trying to say. Well, like, what does it matter? Well, what I've got in there is fingers I cut off people in car parks. What do you think it is? Yes. Anyway, it's, I said, yes, it's it's venison. She said, oh, that's a problem. I said, okay. She said, I think I need to get the supervisor. And I said, okay. So the supervisor lady came across eventually and said, what's in there? And I said, fingers in car parks. No, I said, it's it's meat. Uh, she said, there's a real problem here. And I said, what's the problem? I said, it's explained that it's cryovac and frozen and in a sealed plastic tub of 50, 60 litre capacity, sealed with cable ties, I might also add, with a sticker on it, with my name, address, contact details, all that sort of stuff. She said, I'm very sorry, you can't fly with it. And if we're we okay to mention, I think I asked you, we're okay to mention brand names and product names, lots of stuff. So it was Virgin Airlines. So it was about this time that I found out later, I wrote an article for WSAA and I don't mean to say I wrote the article for any reason, like just what a hero I am, just to say that it was important enough for someone thought it was interesting enough to publish. Virgin had just introduced, they would not bring any animal parts in as trophies from South Africa. And it was not long after that and it was unofficial, but it had filtered down in Australia because luckily my hunting buddy country had put his trophy antlers in his carry-on, which he was allowed to, if he'd had to check it and said, are there any animal parts in there? And it said, yes, they were not going to transport them. So long story short was, she said, look, you might be able to find a, um, they changed the laws. You might be able to find a polystyrene box. Now I would argue that a weak polystyrene box did not offer the protection and security that this plastic tub sealed with cable ties, like zip tied shut would offer. She said, oh, I went down to the cafeteria down there. They, they didn't have a clue. I tried to call Dodge. He'd left to say, could you pick up an Esky from BCF or somewhere? So after butchering this and humping this stuff out of the bush in the heat, the whole lot, I said, is there anyone you can ring? I didn't know anyone. It's, it's Townsville where we were flying from. I, I didn't know anyone locally. I said, to give this to, this is absolutely prime venison. And the whole 60 kilos of it went in the skip bin at the back of the airport. It was just heartbreaking she was very pleasant but chucked the whole lot devastating still haven't eaten chittle but you've got one on the wall behind you thank you so much for asking i was hoping somebody would uh carl thank you yeah it ended up going i don't know dodge knows numbers i don't really do numbers but it went 100 million inches or something dodge was it forty-seven thousand? or was it a good one dodge it's a good one. when you it was what day one or the morning of day two we had an afternoon hunt the day before or something and it was you can tell the story it was your hunt but it definitely oh, go on once well, once it presented, we knew we were going to shoot it because you're not going to pass something like that up early on in the trip. It's and look, you guys may have already covered this, but I I really I, I like trophies, but I wouldn't say I was a trophy hunter. I don't have anything worth scoring. Uh, never have. I don't really care. A representative head, so it looks like the species I'm hunting. That'll do me. Like a spike is not makes a for a really good client because all you got to do is show him one and tell him it's a good one, and, and he's and it, kabang! <laughs> what happened? Oh, yeah, never what say. What was it? Never say. Was that Never say okay. Did I get it? <laughs> <laughs> Never say room. okay. Whiskey's all around. around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right, I will. Yeah, it was. Uh, no, it was it was it was a good one. But I, I'm happy to take because you know it's a lot of expense and all that sort of stuff. And I listened to a, an earlier episode from you guys just about traveling and the expense involved, and and it, it is expensive. And uh, my 
a champagne taste on a beer budget. So I don't want to, I don't, I personally don't want to go home empty handed. And it's not about the trophy for me. It's the, it is the experience, which you guys have, have already covered, but I'm um, probably worth repeating that I would rather take something to have hunted than I oh, know. Well, I passed up a X number of incher holding out for a Y number of incher. Good on you, mate. It becomes a something else measuring contest for me anyway. Not, not, they're not that interested. Circling back to Matho's story. How did your hunt go? It went well. You took a um, firearm up there. How did it go? Did mm, you use it? I had kind of the opposite opposite experience from Ben in that we did see some bulls on the first day. And, in fact, one of the most exciting bits was stalking through really close country along the river there. And the guide had dogs, and he brought one of them along. And the dog usually sniffs out pigs. That's what it's trained for, and he's training them on bulls as well. Um, and this one was showing some interest in an area, but we didn't pick anything. We didn't think anything was there, so we kept going. Got up to the end where we were going and turned around and came back with the wind at our backs and just did a bit of fishing along the river as we went. And we got back to that same spot, and the dog picked up the scent again. So we thought, right, there's something in this. And we crept in, crept in, crept in, and all of a sudden I'm face-to-face with this scrub bull in the deepest, darkest corner of jungle behind the biggest tree there was. And I thought, oh, wow. And I thought, is it going to come this way or is it going to go that way? And then I thought, are those horns any good? Is that a trophy? And that was all it took for Paul to go, right, I'm off. Boom, gone. And I kind of kicked myself for that. But I thought, no, that's right. There's plenty of time here. And for the next two or three days, I said, yeah, there's plenty of time here. And all of a sudden it got to the point where I knew that I'd missed a really good trophy, not missed it by shooting, but missed it by just not stalking it well. It ended up behind us and took off, let us go past. So it's clever bull. And at that moment, I suddenly got a rush of, I'm running out of time, even though I'm only halfway through a six-day hunt or whatever. And it was completely unreasonable, but then I just had to get a bull. And as it turned out, that evening, just on sunset, I managed to get one. Uh, and it was a decent trophy too. Um, not the biggest trophy round, but a really good one. An all-black bull with white horns with black tips and just really even. It was a really good-looking bull. And he was only 30 yards away from us when we saw him. So it was not difficult. Put him down pretty much on the spot. First shot was fatal but didn't drop it. Second shot just finished it. What did you shoot with? Um, uh, 9.3 by 62. And I was really impressed too, and, and I will give a plug here, the only suitable ammo I could get, because it was all very short notice, all of this coming about, even buying the rifle, it arrived at the last minute. And I was, I'd ordered ammo, but there was a stuff up with the delivery and so it didn't come. So on the way to the airport to get there, I swung by uh, Horsley Park and said, what have you got? And they had one box of Hornady Dangerous Game in 9.3. So I bought that. And those two projectiles, the interlock, were perfect. They just performed brilliantly. The first one went through bone on the front leg and just smashed it. It was mushed, that bone, and it still went through heart, lungs, and all the way to the gut and rested against the gut without piercing it. So, yeah, very happy with the performance of those. But, yeah, it was good. It was great. It was very exciting. What, what did you do with the bull? Um, You're not a mount person. No, I'm not a mount person. I left it with them to do what they wanted with it. Um, it's a fairly new business up there. Um, so I thought, well, they can probably use it for their own promotions better than I can if they want to. Uh, meat went for, for local consumption and things like that. And then I had a few days to go and hunt pigs. So, yeah, it was great. Really enjoyed it. How you many got inches, Matho? Don't know. Never measured it. But, you know, I keep telling my wife that's three. Here we go. Oh, See, hang on. No, I, I got keep, that wrong, didn't I? I? Keep, Damn it. Gave it away. I keep popping them up. You keep knocking them out of the park, big guy. 
Uh, <laughs> sound effects and everything. Happy because to help. Because I, I actually did get a, a trophy buffalo, uh, by, totally by a chance. I don't know if this is relevant or not, but uh, flew Qantas, had a much better experience with firearms. I didn't – oh, no, I did too. Did fly with ammo that time. Previously, I'd flown, I'd flown with firearms in the past and haven't bothered with ammo, sourced it locally, like had it pre-bought locally. But I took a 306 – and country had some two thirty six two twenty grainers, I think, yeah. Remington's factories. So we flew with those. Like you, sighted it in at a beer box at fifty meters. Anyway, actually, Dodge, you've uploaded the video of that somewhere, haven't you? Or you are going to? I will. I can. It'll be yeah, on the yeah. socials. Yeah, right. And same thing. One shot kill. I didn't have to shoot. I, no, for those that don't know, the caliber that you—they look like cigars those rounds looks like something you should feed into something mounted onto the top of a Jeep in Nicaragua. Like I, there's just gigantic. So I prefer things that are a bit more subtle. 306, two, three, one shot kills with that on mine. Another bloke's uh, buff. Uh, we got a bunch of pigs that trip as well. Super Im- impressive. Uh, and uh, brought the firearms up and back. No, no problems. You mentioned um, purchasing ammunition locally when you you could does traveling with ammunition add complexity to it sure does it you, okay. it's, it, i'd say it's more trouble than the firearm i reckon right. oh dodge doesn't agree yeah but that's because it's all he does is just get on a fly i'm just flying to canberra even though uh, so i'm just wondering I mean, i've got a whole bunch of bullets in my pocket yeah go on tell us dodge how there's a little this. bit more bureaucracy involved you've got to apply for a permit but the permit is with the airline and it takes a few seconds to do it online all you've got to do is basically prove to them that you've got a license and you can carry it. And I think the limit when I travelled the other day was five kilos, which was more than enough, and it just had to be locked up in a box and you check in. So it's, I found it easy. Well, it's funny. So it's it's a, like a 90-day permit too. Um, so you can actually travel back and forth for you know in that 90 days with it. But they ask, it's not how many rounds, it's how many kilos. And, yes, five kilos sounds like a lot. I came back from Townsville with seven and a half kilos on one trip and still on. Now, I've declared the five. We'll call the rest empty cases, but... Um, What's the statute of limitations sorry. on that? No, no, but the other thing which is probably worth sharing is uh, you cannot travel with hand loads, or you couldn't. Last time I did it, it's got to be got to be factories. So the, the reason for that is they don't want them... Yes, that's the wording. You can hand load and put them in a case, like a, a bullet case or a bullet box. What they don't want is loose rounds mm. touching each other, individually you know, standing upright in a nice little closed case or what they want is a factory box. You can do hand loads and put them in a factory box and travel with them. When I, when I did Africa, when I did Africa, the critical thing is no loose rounds. When I did Africa the second time, I think the wording was still no, that's international different to domestic, obviously. No, I'm sure it said no, no roll your owns. I'd have to check that. But I I think, yeah. And how, no matter what you put it in, put it in whatever you like. Yeah, yeah, like Dodge saying, how do they know who at the airport is saying, oh, that's a correct? Three, that's but the a, rule is the you, you can yeah. you can load. I well, wonder what the reason for it is. I thought it was well, because the loads might be hot or volatile. Yeah, hot rounds go it's off on inconsistency. A dash. I mean, factory loads are factory yeah. loads are. You know, you can go on Google and find out the details of that load. They know how much they weigh and and what their sort of top end and low end temperature controls are before there's an issue when you're loading. Specification, yeah. 
yeah, they're yeah. made to yeah travel safe and that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's the rule. The way around it is putting hand loads in a factory box. But is that legal? Yeah, well, we, it's not legal to go to yeah. a pub and leave your car unattended either. But we've covered that as a grey area. So let's just um, put a uh, disclaimer at the start of the podcast: <laughs> none of this is legal advice. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's not legally I think that's important. Yeah. And a little late, but go on. Yes. Uh, ben, you mentioned going to Africa. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, fabulous. I've been lucky enough to go twice. So I've been to Africa twice and spent more money than I really should have to shoot the same number of kudu as my grandmother, uh, who's never shot a gun. So uh, it's just heartbreak. Um, first time I went was a long time ago, uh, like maybe 15, 20 years ago. And I was a well, look, adult onset hunter is the catch phrase uh didn't know anyone who'd done this stuff you read about in magazines african hunting it didn't seem real and then i i helped a a kid who who had his grandpa just got his license had grandpa's uh, i think it was the lithgow the pullback bolt 22 with the open sights happened to be on a property i was helping mark some uh, cattle and the dad didn't know much about it and uh, i said oh look i know a little bit i'll happy to help out so i sighted the thing in and i got he got a feral cat well, that fella's uncle, that little chap's uncle, ran like photographic safaris in South Africa and said, um, and I, wife and I were just getting married and she said, we're flying to wherever we flew to Italy or somewhere, which I had no interest in. But anyway, and she said that we, I said, we can, she said, you can stop over in Singapore or South Africa or something. And I said, well, South Africa safari saying like, wow, the moon, you know, cool. Anyway, then, it, then the word got out through a few mates, um, mates of mine that, well, you know, this fellow actually does a bit of a fixer and can sort this stuff out. And I ended up catching up with him. I said, because don't make empty promises to me. If you say, you know, I was thinking about doing it. Well, I will do it. I will show. If you make me an offer, I'm going to accept it and press on with it. So he really helped sort of broker the whole thing. So I went to Africa the first time and it was surreal. It, it wasn't, this was sort of almost um, sort of pre-Facebooky days. You just, the stuff was all still pictures. It just wasn't videos except stuff that was local. And so it was totally surreal. And I got an absolutely cracking case of the yips. Like I, I missed, I would have missed the barn door at 20 paces. I just, you, you, you can hear monkeys in the distance and lions roaring and you're walking through the, through the bush. And by law, you have to have uh, a tracker and then yourself. And then you have your PH or your guide, your professional hunter walking behind. And they tell you, <laughs> they tell you, when you step, when he steps with his right foot, you step with your right foot. When you step with your left foot, he, you step with your left foot. So you, all I could think about walking through is we're doing this bizarre sort of Congo line, Congo line, walking through the thing. Uh, and then th- there it is. Shoot, shoot. And I think, what? Oh, I just see Bush. I, anyway, then, then finally I got close enough. We were actually sitting down after doing all this walking and I had not been successful. And I am thinking, well, I suck. I just suck as a hunter and shooter, even though I had done plenty in Australia, I'd never experienced this. This was expensive. And I just, yep, got the yips first and last time in my life. We were sitting down. My PH was a smoker on, on one of the dirt tracks. We'd been bush bashing all the rest of it and is, is having a smoke 50 meters away. An Impala breaks through onto the track. We just sit downwind. We're talking. We're not whispering. We're talking and he is smoking. So, I spun around and as it happened, the, when you're sitting on your on your backside, you can um, grab your knees with your arms and cradle the rifle in your elbow. It was a shot I took my first rabbit with at about age 25 and I was really comfortable with it. Anyway, drilled this thing through the shoulder and I should say it was with this full timber stocked 308 from the Boer War or something. 
we tested it. It was just it had a it had like minute of beer box like it was just so inaccurate. And he, he's on the phone cleaning the thing. He pulls a wet one out of the packet as he's talking on the phone and cleans this thing up. Anyway, we we saw the blood and we we couldn't track it. And so he said, "Oh no, we'll we'll go and get the um the trackers to come and find it." So we go back to have breakfast about nine o'clock in the morning. I can't eat. I am so nervous. I've drawn blood. So for those who don't know, if you draw blood on a paid safari, usually you, you pay for the animal. You've done your dough. So he said, no, they will walk straight up to it. By the time we drove back to the, to the house and had breakfast and drove, he described to the indigenous trackers where it was. By the time we had, I didn't have, he had a cup of coffee and a muffin. We drove back. Not only had they found it, they had dragged it back to the road and were sitting down having a rolly, having a smoke on the side of the thing. So I said, how can you ask them how, how, what do they look for? Like, how did they find that? And he asked them, he spoke Sutu, which was a local language. And to them, it literally is like walking up a footpath. They can't not see it. I, I was just dreadful at tracking. And I like to say I've improved my tracking skills to the point where they're genuinely SH1T house, but I can track most animals and find most things. These guys just did it in their sleep. So I had my first animal, got over the yips, had a great, great trip. Didn't get a kudu. So fast forward uh, at least a dozen years later, they say that Africa is a niche that gets under your skin and every now and again, you've got to scratch it. So I said, this is it. You know, I think we were due to, but my wife was pregnant, which timing was lousy. And she said, no, go, go doll. And so, so I went with, I was baby was due in like three weeks or a month, which uh, would have been no good for you, Matt. Anything that comes early is, is no good. So I was lucky, uh, went back, had a great trip, knew what to expect this time. I told my mate what to expect and that surrealness of walking through the scrub and hearing all these animals. And we had a great trip. I passed up a kudu on the first day, had it, but this stage I had a rangefinder. Travel with my own firearms this time, so because I, I just I thought this three hundred eight it wasn't, and it was shooting the combination of the old military ammo. This just wasn't accurate and it just wasn't helping me, and I had no confidence in it. Went, that's what the yips are, right? So I took my thirty oh six, which was the one I shot this buff with. It's probably my most accurate, even though it's only a sport weight barrel. And yeah, I just almost like I couldn't miss the second time around. I, I only say that because I had the terrible yips the first time around. I drilled three warthog in three shots and just had a great trip past up a kudu. He said, the guides there looking says, no, no, that is not the kudu for you. That is not big enough, Ben. You can, we can get you a bigger one. Well, he was a filthy liar because we did not get a bigger one. We never even saw another kudu for the whole trip. But then on the last morning, I'm out. And he, he says, the, the the tracker who has limited English says, water bush, water bush. And I'm thinking, what the for heck is a water bush? Anyway, then I saw the rump of this thing, huge gray thing with a white target. And he says, shoot, shoot. Now, I, I confess to say I didn't really know what I was shooting. I mean, it was a game animal. I knew it was okay. I could see it wasn't a stock animal and it was safe backdrop and all that stuff. Anyway, shot this thing. We went after it. And it dropped, and it was a 450 kilo water buck, huge uh, rack, huge antlers, um, and I, it was actually, in local terms, apparently far more valuable than a kudu. There was not what I wanted. I wanted the big one meter spirally antlers and all that sort of stuff. So brought the trophies home, and even then, that's changed a lot. I don't know if you want to get into importing trophies and the way to do it then, as opposed to now. Uh, there's a lot of ways to save money, which I didn't know about, but I still haven't shot a kudu over there. And so 
Uh, in fact, Dodge and I are a little bit of chats about uh, potentially heading somewhere in the next couple of years because it's been another long time since I've been. My fortieth uh, is coming up next year, so I just want to throw that out there, mate. Do because the funny my the buffalo which went a yeah. hundred inches, by the way, Matho. It doesn't matter who's counting. Your three is important to you, and that's what matters to me. That it went a hundred inches with this buffalo. It was the first animal I've ever shot that was worth measuring. It was for my fiftieth. And uh, I was lucky enough to have Dodge and, and country come with us and and do that. So birthdays are a big thing. I'll definitely keep that in, on board, mate. In fact, you and I might have a little chat off here about something else. Carry on. Birthday present hunts. In your birthday suit? No, I'm not coming, Dodge. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's talk about Dodge's physique for a minute. I don't think that's inappropriate. I think it's totally relevant to the whole thing. You know that the, the talk about you know, when you walk behind someone, oh, it looks like two wombats having a wrestle in a sleeping bag. Let me tell you, what a buttock. I mean, what a masculine and manly, massive buttock. It's just something else. You know, I love you dearly, brother. But what you want is little chicken legs like mine. The RSPCA used to try and arrest me for riding in on a chook all the time. But then you see Dodge say, how do you get shorts to fit those things, brother? Anyway, sorry, I got, I got distracted. Carry on. Have you seen our yeah, socials? The socials, like the photos Dodge puts up, I don't recognise him. No, that Remy Warren thing he's got going on. I know. He's, he's a lot really chunkier than Remy Warren, mate. Yeah. In a good way and in all the right areas. Yeah. Well, none of you are ever getting diet hunting going. ever again. Oh, um, come on. How's the carnivore diet going, Dutch? Yeah, beautiful. I had a great weekend in Perth and I had lots of carnivore sashimi and oysters and things, but I'm fat it wasn't again worth it. and I'm going to work on it again. Unless they can make chocolate part of the carnivore diet, Dodge will never stick to it. I can just share that. <laughs> the only reason you're skinny is because you drink rum 24-7. Mate, let me tell you, that is mother's milk, my friend. <laughs> I'm starting to get a bit of a glow on. I think that's fine. I think that matters. There's no firearms around. We're just chatting about it. But I think, yeah, just starting to feel no pain. There is a bit of a kudu chat happening. And uh, I think we just need to go to a property that only has kudu and no one's allowed to leave until we've all shot kudu. Yeah. Um, it's my wife's number one African animal. It's the only one Kyle really wants to shoot over there. You've tried twice unsuccessfully. And, uh, yeah, Matt will come along and shoot anything because he's kidding. I, I should say, too, that people that think, you know, and, and it gets some bad press, I think it's sort of blown up. But this whole can shoot thing, I've been there, spent good money, hunted hard, have a lot of experience. I'd like to think I can shoot fairly accurate. And it is. It's not this can thing you walk up there tied to a tree. It just isn't. No one wants that that I know of. Who wants that? I've always said if you could shoot blue wildebeest in your backyard, you couldn't be bothered. You just wouldn't. There's no challenge in it. You want to go over there and make it hard. I've never seen or heard of anything tangible, which was, yeah, mate, it was a canned hunt. They were tied up in a paddock at the back and, and away you blasted. That's not been my experience anywhere I've ever been. Can I get your opinion then on the buffalo side of it? Um, I know you and I have spoken about this. One comment I get a lot with the buffalo and the scrub ball hunting stuff is, oh, why, why would you want to shoot a cow? Why do you want to shoot a cow that you could shoot here at home? And you and I have spoken, you know, about what buffalo hunting is and how it varies from other hunting and what it encompasses as the whole experience. You want to touch on that at all? Yeah, sure. And look, so who's asking the question? Other hunters or non-hunters? Yeah, uh, other hunters. Again, the, the other side of the hunting factions that aren't, that, you know, we shoot deer and everyone else should be, should shoot deer and that's all you should shoot or just pigs or, you know, why, why do you want to go up there and shoot a cow? They don't see the, the sport in it or the challenge in it. Look, one of the things about our industry, which I, I assume we're going to wander around and, particularly with Matho and his great experience with it. But there's just so many masturbators in it. Like if you, 
I'm not directly linking that to math, though. I should just make that clear. I mean, his, his industry, he would know about this thing. People, I'm not people saying have accused personal, me. Not, I am not saying personal or first-hand experience. They make that very, very clear. But there is the thing. So what's the problem? Like, for example, Apex Predators is one. Like, I personally have no desire to shoot a bear or a lion. I, I don't have any problem with it. I mean, Cecil the lion. I mean, they gave it a name. You want to talk about anthropomorphizing? You know how long I spent practicing that word? You know, in warm up. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather, anthropomorphizing. Yeah, thank you very much. It, it had a name that humans gave it. Would it walk around on its back legs? Like, yeah, it was at the pub smoking a pipe. Like, it's an animal over there. So people seem to be so tied up in, but that's not, because it's not my thing. That doesn't mean I think anybody shouldn't hunt it. If, if it's legal, sustainable, and ethical, humane, use whatever words you like there. I got, no pro- I got no problem with, and this would be controversial, I got no problem with harvesting whale if it's done in a sustainable and humane way. I, I don't want to particularly do it or eat it. It doesn't interest me. But oh, it tastes fantastic. It's really nice. Something between like a koala uh, and a platypus, I hear. Is, is what it tastes like. Anyway. Uh, the, um, oilier than that, though. Yeah, right. More better smoked. Yeah, dry it out yeah. a little bit. <laughs> So uh, the people that think it's just a cow that you can shoot here, uh, I don't really, I don't really even try to talk. I say, yes, that's what it's like. Yeah, it's just like culling a sheep in the backyard. Matthew and I were talking slightly off air that, you know, we live on acreage and I have sheep and lambs, which I slaughter, home kills. That's not like it at all. And the buffalo hunt or the the scrub bull, the scrubby that you got at the Dodge was a cracker. Donald Trump, he posted a photo that had a little blonde wig at the front. A little toupee at the top. Oh, beautiful. The Don, I love to call it. Um, it, it was definitely more beautiful than the uh, footage that you provided. Uh, okay. So we might as well deal with this in a public forum. So the rule is Dodge is a great videographer, great, great bloke, and a great camera. Hasn't been filmed a lot. Has done a lot of filming, but hasn't been filmed a lot. So the rule is you either have the understanding that I don't care if you videotape it or not. Like if you get it or not, I don't care. I'm going to shoot. Or you check with your videoing mate to say, are you right for me to shoot? Now, what happened in this instance? Actually, the, the scrubby wasn't too you bad. you stuff was, up, Ben? Well, look, it depends who you ask, Matthew. Thank you so much for asking. But it was, we disappeared out of that. We drove past. I actually think I actually think I might have seen this one. You spotted my buff. I think I might have spotted yours. Anyway, we got out of the vehicle. Dodge is maybe 15 or 20 minutes away from me behind a some scrub. I'm behind another bit. I'm looking at him. I can't see the buff. I, I can't see it. I got no, no line of sight. There is no way that I am going to risk blowing that animal out by walking across. I can't really see it. So I wanted to get a bit closer to ruin it. So, and then, so the next thing I hear is he turns around, he says, are you right? I say, no head wobble. Bang. It turns to me, did you get it? No. What I did get is a terrible case of tinnitus because you didn't tell me you were shooting. I didn't put my earplugs in and you got a muzzle brake on the thing. What I did not get was buffalo footage and now he won't let it go. None of it. This is actually something to take forward for the listeners is if you've got a mate, you need to know in advance, do you want to get this video footage or risk losing the hunt? And both answers are fine, but make a decision. Not afterwards. Bang. Tinnitus. Did you get it? <sighs> he doesn't carry on at all, but that very good footage of all of his kills. And I was right behind him the whole time. I didn't need about, to be 15 meters away scaring the animals because they don't see the my donkey. legs coming. I got the donkey. I got your donkey cracking yeah. footage. <laughs> yeah, after you edited it. Cracking footage. I just want to rewind for a second. 
You said you ate whale. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Um, Definitely something I want to try. In Denmark and in Iceland. And in Iceland, it was on a motorcycle trip, not a hunt. Um, but in Denmark, uh, I was hunting over there. And uh, the mate bloke from Denmark, who's a professional hunter too, not in a guide way, but he, he writes about it and does all that sort of stuff, he'd invited me over there and just presented for lunch one day this great big plate full of meats that I'd never eaten. There was seal. He'd hunted it. Mm. I didn't know you can even hunt seal. Not not these days, but he'd hunted it with a rifle in the water. Um, there was whale uh, and a couple of other local delicacies too, and it was all fantastic. But the whale, it's, it's really oily meat. Uh, imagine red deer or beef just dripping, not quite dripping with oil, but very oily. Was it um, cooked? Uh, you could have it either way. I've had it cooked and I've had it raw. And I'd eat it happily both ways. It's good. So, yeah, really nice. What were you hunting over there? Um, I was, no, I was hunting um, roebuck. Uh, and it was on a little 110-hectare island off the coast of Denmark. And when I say an island, there was a 50-metre-long causeway from the mainland to the islands, which went under at high tide. Uh, some dot-com billionaire owned this island, and he had a farmer who farmed it, and he had a gamekeeper who kept the game. And it was culling time, so they were culling a few of the older roe deer that had survived all the uh, the hunters had been through. And he lined me up for one of those and said, uh, on the first day, and he said, it usually comes out from those bushes at night, so if you sit up in this high chair, you might get it. And it walked out and I shot it and went, right, I just got a trophy roebuck, so what? It didn't feel like a hunt. We spent the next four days traipsing around this bloody island looking for younger ones that needed to be culled. We weren't allowed to shoot the females. We weren't allowed to shoot the rabbits. We weren't allowed to shoot any of the pheasants. Uh, The only thing on the menu was young male roebucks. We didn't see one, but we saw everything else. Mm. Until we saw a rabbit without ears. And we'd seen lots of dead rabbits and dead pheasants. And he put it down to the local eagles, which were had been extinct and had just come back into the region. So they're really happy to have those. Um, so they didn't mind some rabbits and some pheasants getting killed by the eagles. Um, until we saw this rabbit without ears. And I looked a bit more closely and said, is that a cat? And he's looking through his binoculars and he said, that's a cat. And I said, what's a cat doing here? And he said, it shouldn't be here. He said, do you want to shoot a cat? And I said, yep. And so I shot the cat. Turned out it was highly illegal in Denmark. You're not allowed to shoot cats in Denmark. But that was, I'm an Aussie and I got away with it. And that was a very Aussie thing to do, I thought, shoot a feral cat. So yeah. Yeah, that, many was, yeah, that was great fun. Good hunt. Many Australian hunters will not pass up a cat. I know a bloke will be stalking, you know, goats, pigs, deer, whatever. And if he sees a cat, bang, the cat's going down. Yeah, anything. Absolutely. Cat before anything. Or dog without a collar. In the more bush you go, more remote you go. Dog yeah. without a collar. I, yep. Yeah. Yep. Definitely controversial one. Did you? Well, out west, I, I knew a bloke. Um, grew up on a station, and growing up, his old man said to him, "I don't care if you drive through gates, through fences, right off a vehicle, getting a wild dog, you get it because it could kill fifty sheep in a night. You know, and the the money that that's worth. Mm. So yep. yeah, the, out west, the property owner will say to you, "All oh, my dogs are locked up." Yeah, dogs without collars, shoot them. Mate, dogs with collars. I mean, legally, out west, yeah. depending how far west you go, and depending on no, if you've ever been, and I have, if you've ever been and seen the damage that a dog attack does, and they don't eat it, they can't 
help themselves. I've had foxes here with chooks. I've probably shot a dozen foxes since we've been out here. I've probably lost 50 chooks to foxes. Hate them, kind of admire them as well, but really hate them. The damage they do and they can't help themselves kill, those dogs, they're organised, they're hard to shoot. That um, southeastern Queensland trip I've been up to, he said, you just make sure you get a real good shot at it. He said, because if you fluff it, you educate them and it makes them even harder. I guess unpopular opinion here, but I still don't understand when we talk about like the Brumbies here, why we couldn't shoot them and eat them. I mean, it's a delicacy in France. And what do they call it? Is it Chevron? No, Chevron is goat. What's... What's horse? Well, horse? Something it's similar? It's like chevre or something like that. Oh, yeah, it is. It? It's something like that. Anyway, doesn't really matter. But like, it's funny how in different countries, different values are put on different animals, and it's okay to maybe you know eat this animal but not this animal when it's all just meat. Haven't you eaten at Dodge? You've eaten horse, haven't you? Uh, no, I've tried several times. Chevaline is uh, is what it's called. C H E V A L I N E. Oh, fair enough. Apologies. I thought you said Siobhan is the owner of goat. But haven't you eaten horse, Dodge? No, um, I have tried a couple of times. We had some probably not a great podcast story, but um, a foal that was struggling and ended up being put down and I nominated myself to do that and then got voted out at the last second and ended up getting the green dream, which means then you can't eat the meat. But um, I was, yeah, I thought that's like a veal equivalent. It's not going to get any better than that. And... Yeah, got it. Got outvoted. There's a little bit of emotions attached to that one. So no, I haven't, but definitely would. Have you? And no, not horse. But I think that's the root of the problem with the horse argument in Australia is it's emotional. Mm-hmm. It's it's like the argument: how can you shoot the kangaroo because it's on your coat of arms? It's a purely emotional argument, and it'll be a long time before that changes because of the history of horses in the high country and how connected they are to Anzac, to the Man from Snowy River poetry, all that sort of stuff that is so central to our identity as Australians, as white Australians, we are not going to get to shoot horses in national parks no matter what we think, unless we get professional jobs in helicopters. Which which they did. They, they did that. They, they've, they had a Brumby kill down in the yep. snowy somewhere. They, they were all dying of starvation and yep. they went a chopper shot them. Yep. And, this is and even then, it. the emotion killed that off. Yeah. yeah, I remember that as a kid. I remember the petition going around, my uncle signing it and stuff because he loved horses. And we've talked about this, I think, just about on every episode it comes up, but I really get a bee on bonnet about that because we claim that you can't shoot Brumbies because of the cultural significance and the heritage, but then people want to outlaw deer hunting and hunting deer with hounds or you know, hunting pigs with dogs or whatever, and you can use that same argument that it's our heritage, it's our culture. People have been hunting with dogs for hundreds of thousands of years. People have been hunting deer, you know, since the dawn of time. And people have been hunting deer in Australia for hundreds of years. It's how is it different? I don't know if you know much about the Snowy Mountains, but there's a campground down there called Blue Waterholes. And in I do a lot of camping and, and love going down the Snowies. And at Blue Waterholes Campground, they had a massive problem with far too many Brumbies to the point that a kid got injured and uh, I think another adult both put in hospital on separate occasions from interactions with the Brumbies, them coming through the camp because they just don't care and they injured a couple of people and people were still there going, nah, leave them alone when it was very clear there was a heap of them there. They were overpopulated but everyone was like, nah, leave, leave them be. It's very interesting people's thoughts on the whole thing and how they pick what animal deserves to live and 
Dozen. And then you get one shark attack and then they want a long line drum bait every shark yeah. in the day. But the thing with horses and dogs, you know, is our sort of human history is so closely tied to them and that's why we, we get emotional about it, I guess. Talking about eating horses, Dodge, haven't eaten a horse, but we ate donkey, didn't we? We have eaten some donkey. Eaten some donkey. What were those sausages called? Donkey dongs. Donkey dongs. <laughs> donkey dongs. And it ate exactly how you would imagine. It was tasted like... It was terrible. No, definitely not my, my best. So Dodge and I was all part of the, on the tail end of that um, birthday hunt of mine. We brought back, goodness knows how much buffalo or how much meat we bring back. hundred kilos, maybe 150. Yeah. I'll, I want to unpack that for a second. And how did we get the meat back? We, that was a little bit of a, just a chance meeting. I, um, we're doing our education courses. Ben and I run a hunter education course and one of the clients or one of the punters there, we were going on this trip not long after. And he said, Oh, what are you doing with the meat? And I said, oh, well, we usually fly back with an esky full each. And he said, why only an esky? I said, well, you know, is max limits on what you can carry. I could carry 62 kilos because I get Qantas Club, get two 32 kilo bags. But he said, oh, no, I know a guy. I said, what do you mean? He said, he does refrigerated transport Darwin to Sydney every 48 hours, return trip. It sounds mafia. So, so you know, I, I know a guy. He can help you. Come over here. I'll help you. <laughs> Sorry, carry on, mate. Go on. Just the way you paint this, would you meet him in a car well, park? In fact, I think you did. Oh, yeah, definitely did. It was like quarter past midnight in the back of a car park in the middle of Catherine. That's actually and true. This uh, <laughs> this truck pulls in. Everyone else was asleep, I think. Oh, no, you were did you come with us? No, yes, you were asleep. I did. For the drop-off. No, you came no, with no. Us like- I was with you. He keeps me around and saying, I mean, to come back. No, Asleep in the back of the car. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are we doing here? <laughs> anyway, this truck. I, I have shipment for you. This you truck- can, I can help you. Meet you in the car No phone. <laughs> we, uh, we pulled open the back of the doors on this truck and loaded in. I think we we're about 150 kilos of meat, actually. Um, and then plus, we also loaded our heads in there. So trophies, um, not the car park ones, but ones we'd hunted. And no fingers from Ben's finger journeys when he was harvesting those, but loaded those in and they nearly beat us back to Sydney. I don't know what those truck drivers were using to do that other than cans of blue V, but they nearly, they were driving that quick. And uh, yeah, so they drove two up and they were back in Sydney in less than 48 hours, which is a crazy journey from Darwin. But we got our meat home and then I hung it in the cool room for two weeks. And then Ben came back to my place and we did a bit of a mince up and a cook up. And uh, yeah, so that was a, a mix mince of scrub bull, buffalo, and donkey. And look, it wasn't my favorite. We still use it now and still run it through bolognese and that sort of thing. But it just didn't. I didn't like the flavor so much, so I didn't do but burger I patties out of it. Or did you use yours? It was it was the it was the the meal that we bought to mix with it. Like well, I've split them back open and used it as mints. Here's another thing, though. Speaking about game uh, sort of preparation, game meat preparation. And I have done this to you, Dodge, and I think it was one of the rare times I won an argument against you was about aging meat and how long you do it for. So we were in Townsville and we had a relatively, someone had shot a relatively young animal. And I, Dodge and I did this with donkey. We did this with buffalo. We did this with scrubble. We will take a small section of the, of the back strap, butterfly it, very lightly salt and pepper it, very lightly fry it. So it's rarer than most people would eat. And eat it. And I said, everything, certainly game meat is way better aged at least sort of 10 to 14 days. And this got, you know, after a few uh, sherbets in camp, no, no, you can eat it straight over the grill. And what I said, you're talking through your 
And we did it, and it had good. The, this was chilled deer, uh, light frame deer, mild flavor, delicious. It was good flavor. It was tough as eating your thong. It was just miserable to eat. Was it wasn't aged, and I still think that the buffalo donkey mix. I've still got. I think I got one pack left of the original stuff prior to the sausage. Delicious, no problem. Donkey, great. We also ate donkey backstrap the same way. Very slight livery aftertaste. I think it was with maybe your father-in-law. We we were tasting it. and Yeah. The downside of trophy side of hunting is you're shooting mature, old. Correct. Bucks, bulls, stags. These things are eight, nine, ten. Not something you would definitely target for meat. So when we say we get meat as a sideline, it is a sideline because it's not, you're definitely not targeting them for tasty, tender meat. It's definitely usable. There's no issue with using it. Just need to use it differently. But wouldn't you say, and here's a question for everybody. So there's a bit of a long running conversation that I have is with game meat is I like to prepare game meat for people who aren't hunters and I want to make it as palatable as possible. So I don't, so I love Mexican food. So tonight, actually little side issue uh, or sidebar, want to thank Dodge very generously. I haven't shot a deer in two years, shot at a deer, took my daughter on a hunt, shot at a deer, didn't get it, uh, missed it. And with the coronavirus, you couldn't, um, my coronavirus, as I call it, you couldn't uh, go anywhere, you couldn't shoot anything, no venison in the freezer. Dodge very generously gave us some. I did uh, venison fajitas tonight for dinner, which is my favourite. You could serve that to anybody and just they would just think it was delicious. I reckon that's a win. But then other people say, oh, no, we should be embracing the, the different flavours of the game meat. But I would say, because it's got its own smell, if you put a plastic bag with chicken, with fish, and with lamb in front of people, blindfolded, everybody would be able to tell the difference between the three. You you just would. It's just like rabbit. It's got a kangaroo if you've um, taken any under tag or bought some at the supermarket. So it's question for the panel is, is it a win to actually taste the game meat? And people say, yes, don't like that. It's a, it's a, it's, I don't, I, I think, I argue that it's a, a strong flavor. It's just a different flavor. Fish, lamb, and it's massively different. But when you add game meat in there, I would rather have it be a successful night, which I've done probably a hundred times. Fed meat, unsuspecting uh, to people who guess who weren't hunters. This is delicious. What is this? And I tell them lamb or beef. What's everyone's thoughts on that? I reckon it comes back to what Dodge was saying about the animal itself, the age of it and so on. If you know that you're going to be feeding game meat to people who've never eaten it before, get the youngest, yummiest bit of venison you possibly can. Don't get the trophy buck you shot um, because there's a definite difference in it. Don't feed them an old billy goat. Feed them a young little nanny or something like that. Um, it makes all the difference in the world. So it's a matter of getting the right animal rather than the right recipe in the first place. If you've got the wrong animal, the recipe helps, absolutely. I'm going to go a different pathway here. I'm going to go, it comes more down to a psychological point. I view every animal or food as it's a delicacy somewhere in the world. So I'll eat anything. I'll try anything, have no issues, qualms. I'll get into anything because I'll sit there and go, well, somewhere this is a delicacy and people, this food is revered. So I have no problem with any of the flavours because I go into it with that mindset. I flip that and look at my brother-in-law and he is quite the opposite of me and, you know, he's so adamant and against tasting game meat that he refuses to because he's never tried it but he has that 
I will not eat it. It's gamey. It's got a gamey taste, but he's never tried it. So for me, I think it's more from a psychological standpoint than people going thing. And as you said before, there's an attachment, whether it be emotional, whether it be psychological. I'm not going to eat kangaroo. I'm not going to eat this. One of my favourite meats is crocodile. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Camel, like uh, any of those meats, they're, they're, for me, they're absolutely delicious. But I go in to eat any of that with an open mind and I'm happy to take the flavour. I think, you know, in regards to Ben's question, it's about audience. You know, if I'm cooking like for my wife, for example, and I expect her to eat the venison, it's like I'm not cooking steaks. It's going to be something yeah. slow cooked, you know, you know, rich tomato sauce or something like that, a casserole where it comes out like, you know, pulled beef. Um, but my dad, for example, I'll be like, hey, dad, you want, you want to try some of this, you know, backstrap or something like that? And he'll be up for it and we'll, you know, yeah, like you say, just cook it on the grill, a bit of salt and pepper, something like that, and enjoy it for what it is and, and discuss the flavour and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, a group of friends come around um, who aren't hunters. Yeah, Mexican is a good one. Um, ben, I, I do like... Um, doing yeah, venison burritos, um, venison burgers are always pretty pretty popular. I like yeah, stroganoff is good. Always comes out good. Um, it's all about audience, I think. Can I go against that audience thing? Because if you go to Yumcha or something like that, how many people go to Yumcha and will eat chicken feet because it's the experience? What's the difference? Hey, I love it. I love it too. One of my favourite dishes is tripe. I make sure I get tripe every time I go to Yumcha. Delicious. But I sit there and watch all these other people go in and they do the same, the chicken feet, the tripe, all these things. But as an audience, they probably never would. So what's the difference because it's in a restaurant as opposed to a house? Yeah, I think when you said psychological, that's true. I've fed lamb to somebody who hates lamb, but they didn't know they were getting lamb and they said it was fantastic. They really enjoyed it. They thought it was beef and some of the best beef that they've had. Uh, I've fed venison to people who say that they don't like game meat, but they've loved that. So, yeah, if they don't know, it makes a difference. And the thought of eating chicken's feet, especially if you've held up chook, you know, they're filthy, horrible things, is awful. But, yeah, you go to a Chinese restaurant, different thing altogether if you've got the right mindset. It takes me to a a story. My wife, we went out to a a restaurant and we had, um, what was it, escargot, which is obviously snails, and uh, sweetbread. And she was eating the sweetbread and, oh, this is delicious. What is it? And as soon as she found out that it was testicles, that was it. Game over. I said, hold on. A minute ago, before you knew it was testicles, you were loving this. And it was the same. I tricked her one time and told her Osabuco was the gooch. And that was it. She would never eat Osabuco. But um, it, it is that psychological thing. And I find that very interesting. And Look, I agree. But the thing is, as you say, is, is who's your audience with it? I've had groups around here and it happens to be that the fellas have, have been out shooting with me or, or uh, shooters and that their wives are against it. Now, my wife's not, as it happens. So, therefore, the audience is, if they knew it was venison, they're not going to eat it, not going to touch it. Mexican's a great one because the flavours are sort of fairly strong. And, and if, Kyle, if you like burritos, man, the fajitas are just something else. You have to come around. I, I'm not nearly as good a cook as Dodge, but the stuff I do, I'm really comfortable. I've really tweaked the recipe till I, I know it. I'm comfortable with it and know it well. Yeah, so in that case, for me, a success is I don't want to know it's venison. If they eat it and I tell them it's lamb, as Matho said, well, that's a success. They've loved the meal, loved it. And then if, if he chooses to go home and, and say to his wife, actually, that was venison tonight, 
that's up to him. I let him know. I, I don't want to put one over anybody. You know, I don't want to trick anybody into eating something that's against what they want to you know believe in. But I said, so I'm going to cook venison fajitas for everybody tonight. Bring the the family's coming around. Up to you whether you tell. He said, no, don't tell her. She'll love it. And then I'll have a quiet conversation with later on. Yeah, cool. Huge success. Backtrack to you, Matho, with old Billy Goat. As you say, the recipe, I have, I wrote an article about it. I have done filthy, rank, old, rutting Billy Goat in a curry, and it was spectacular. I said to people not telling them what it was, and it was just beautiful, strong-flavoured curry. But I did a bunch of tricks. I don't know if this is the place for it, but... I cleaned my knives after I'd skinned it and changed. I wore gloves and got rid of the gloves. So I didn't contaminate any of the meat with any of the stuff on the outside of the fur. You can tell when you are, I always say you can tell under the knife as to when you take like an old billy goat backstrap, you've got to cut through venison. You, I sort of hold the, the filleting knife over the top of the thing. The backstraps jump in the esky, the hind legs jump in the esky, whereas old billy goat is just so tough. But it was spectacular, absolutely spectacular success based on the recipe. I agree with you though. It depends on, you don't shoot old trophy animal. You buy that stuff from the supermarket for your beef and it's rubbish. So why would old game meat be any different? Is your, your fajita recipe, Ben, something you've published yet or is it something that we could probably steal and put up on the socials for the listeners? I don't, uh, the, the, the fajita, I think I have the burritos, which is a slight tweak on it. No. Yeah. Happy to show throw you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Spectacular. It's just, for me, if you like Mexican, you can't not like this. I say, I cooked yours tonight for the family. It's just a massive hit. We love it. Yeah, sounds good. I'd, I'd really be excited to try that recipe. One, though, yeah. I tried recently and... Sorry, uh, just to drop you there. About this Did today, I, I, thought you, I thought you, your screen had frozen, but it's just the vacant look on your face. Sorry, mate, carry on. <laughs> uh, edit that part out. You're uh, <laughs> not. Um, <laughs> that's his best gear for the night. Um no, we're talking today about uh, something I've been working on recipe-wise. I've done it twice now. Was, I'm calling it Osso Neko, and it's um, the neck of a, a deer or something, but then sliced with a bandsaw uh, straight across. So you're mixing the – you get the flavour of the bone marrow in there while you're cooking, um, and then you eat it. Just a typical Osso-Bulco-style, thick tomato-based. And, um, yeah, it's been been quite successful. We've uh, enjoyed it. It's just a different way to have neck. I've had neck – slow cooked before and pulled it. That was one of Ben's suggestions and it really worked well, but it's just, there's only so many ways you can eat a neck. That recipe, I did submit that as an article. I've wasted so much shoulder and neck in the field. I'm embarrassed about it because I didn't know any better. And to slow cook that and pull it, you can put it in tacos. You can, again, Mexican flavor. You can put in tacos. You can put in nachos, anything that's you can sort of do mince with, you can do pulled with shoulders. I find shoulders a pain in the backside to bone out. Either I lack the knife skill or whatever. You slow cook that, pull it apart. You can um, rolls with gravy. Everybody loves that. Nobody doesn't like pulled something with gravy. It's just salty, fatty goodness. Just delicious. Love it. Question for um, everybody is, I'm really interested, never done it, and I really want to try is sous vide um, game meat. I haven't done it and I hear really good things and I see some really good things on YouTube, but I've never tried it. Any of you guys had a crack? No one. Interesting. What was it you said, sous vide? Cooked in, slowly cooked in really low temperature water, like 60 degrees no. in a bag? For about a year. No. Yeah, it's in like a vacuum <laughs> vac seal. You cryovac it. So Put I got a new warm bath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Every part of it sounds awful. Uh, hey, I'm going to take this game meat in a plastic bag into the bath with me for a year and just see what happens when it comes out. Terrific. Uh, it can be done in the dishwasher, Matt. I don't know if you've ever seen that one or tried that one. <laughs> yep. I'm not eating at your place. Yep. Sounds awesome. Hey, this reminds me of Kramer. Yeah, I cooked this food while I bathed. Yeah, here you go. Try this. <laughs> that takes <laughs> me to that episode when he was, remember he oiled himself up like a turkey mm. and he turned orange? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're showing our age, boys. Oh, cook this while I bathed. Welcome to Dodge's house. Please. I haven't done it. I said, have you seen it? Not I've tried it in the bathroom. Do you want to explain what, what sous vide is, Matt? Yeah, isn't it just... Matt doesn't know. Yeah, you cryovac the meat and then you put it into a lukewarm bath. It's essentially slow cooking it, but doing it inside a, a vac sealed bag. That's the only difference to it. Do you know yeah. what the result is? I've never done it. I've just seen a lot and everyone raves about it. That's why I was curious to see if any of you guys have tried it. I've eaten it and it completely changes the texture of the meat. Yeah. Because my argument, and I've never done sous vide. I've also been interested in it. I I wish someone had had a go uh, because I'd like to know from someone firsthand that isn't just waxing lyrical in a magazine article, but as we all do. But I think that a lot of these cooking techniques – Frankly, are on the masturbatorial side. Uh, even even the, the pan, we pan fry everything before we stick it in in a slow cooker for twelve hours. My darling wife, uh, who is ill at the moment, has done rabbit AB comparison with pre frying, flouring, and so on. Prepping. No difference to my taste buds after twelve hours in the slow cooker. It's delicious and it's fabulous, but no difference with the, the thing and the stuff and the reverse searing and nut. Nah. I don't. As for, so for me, tenderizing, yes, absolutely. As Matho's pointed out, with, with Billy Goat, you're not going to serve that as a steak. It's just going to be tough as old boots. But yeah, these fancy cooking recipes, I don't know. I don't know. I got to argue that because I only just started reverse searing, and I, I'm with you. I thought it was a massive wank, and got a couple of good steaks. Smoked them for you know 30 minutes, an hour got them up to temp, then just quick threw them on the grill. It was the best steaks I have ever had. Fair and enough. now Fair I enough. am, I'll do it for you one time because it Please. was literally, it's changed me. I won't go out to a restaurant and buy steak now because I just feel it's nowhere near as good as the, the reverse here with the smoker. And that's only a pellet smoker. Apparently, if you do yet the smokers where you actually do it properly and not through the pellet grill, it's even better. But, um, Dodge, you ever done that? You, you got a Traeger? Yeah, I have done it uh, only twice. And I'm like you, though. I don't try not to order steak when I'm out at restaurants. I agree. Um, try and order things I wouldn't normally get at home. But uh, I'm going to circle back to the main reason we're here tonight. So, Matho, we were talking earlier about how you've um, just taken up uh, being the editor of Sporting Shooter magazine. Where do you see the future of that magazine going? What are your um, sort of goals um, where would you like to see it go? The inevitable thing that's going to happen, of course, is a transition to being a digital thing, um, which won't be a digital magazine as such, but it will be a, a website, app, whatever it develops into, um, and the paper side of it will go. Uh, but one of the things that's good about Sporting Shooter and some of the other niche magazines like it is that they're still profitable and they're still selling. Um, where magazines generally have died in the arse, uh, all the big ones have just plummeted dramatically. The niche ones are holding up, particularly the ones that have got rural interest. 
a lot of our sales are in rural and regional areas, especially where the internet's still not so good. Um, and so it's holding its own, but the publisher knows that the writing's on the wall and they haven't set a timeline for the demise of the paper, not by any means, um, but they know it's going to happen at some stage, I don't know, five years down the track, something like that. So the transition to digital has now got to happen, otherwise the whole thing disappears. There'll be no future for it. So that's where I'm starting to focus more and more. So we relaunched the website, new look and everything else, same old content, but now what's going on with the new content, what we're putting on now has stepped up another level. And so I've spent most of my time just working behind the desk these days because I've got two jobs. I've got a magazine and a website to run, which isn't much fun, but it's rewarding at the same time because I love the whole lot of it. I don't know. It might be five years. It might be 10 years. I don't know how long it's going to take, um, but eventually all we're going to be is digital. For now, like I say, the magazine is still going well, and that's the thing I love most about it. I really enjoy doing paper magazines, like I said before, but, yeah, you'll see a digital transition, and that's what I'm focusing on. Yeah, I have to say there is a certain enjoyment that I get. Um, you know, Sporting Shooter magazine arrives um, in the mail and I sit down and make up tea or grab a beer, depending on time of day it is, and um, just sit there and enjoy reading the articles for a while. And I feel like there's a certain engagement with that that you don't get if you were to view it online, where I feel like if you're, you're looking on your laptop or on iPad, on your phone, whatever, there's all the other distractions there. There's a certain enjoyment I think you get from sitting down with the magazine and just reading the articles and especially, you know, um, sporting shooter, Nick Harvey's um, columns, um, Australian shooter, you know, John John Dunn's articles. That's the name, isn't it? John Dunn, is that right? Is indeed. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's another one you want to mention. I know you're going to throw it in. I like your product reviews, mate. Yeah. 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 Thanks, mate. There's a certain enjoyment you get from the print media. Um, so I, I think that's why, you, like you say, you do still, still see those magazines um, surviving at the moment. And it's a sort of question of how long that will last. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing from the inside, from my side of it. Um, attention span has a lot to do with it. Accessibility has a lot to do with it. Immediacy has a lot to do with it. There's all these different things come into it. And you're right, there's nothing ever will match sitting down with a book or a magazine and having a good read. Nothing will ever replace that. But there are alternatives to it um, that are pushing it out. So, you know, sitting down and scrolling through Facebook is one of these ultra-short attention span things that people love. They can't get enough of it. So that is going to be with us for a long, long time, too, in different formats. I see video as being the closest thing to replacing a magazine article and podcasts like this too. Things where with a video, you're engaged with the, the audio and the visual and you get really drawn into it. With a podcast, you're engaged with the audio, but you can do it while you're driving or something like that. So that's when I listen to podcasts is when I'm driving. You know, it's brilliant for filling in time then when you can't do anything else other than listen. Everything else is too distracting. Magazines is when you can sit down and, and just have the time to sit down and read. But the trouble is no one goes to news agents anymore. Um, and that's the big downfall with magazines, I think. There's replacement. We don't go to a news agent to get our entertainment. We go online to get it these days. And like I said, sporting shooter and magazines like it still hold up because there's still a huge number of people do go for it, but it won't last that much longer. As a high school teacher, I'm seeing more and more our kids just don't like to read and they don't like to engage in that and they want everything 
now and they want to be entertained and even the way teaching has gone it's not so much about the skills it's more make sure they're engaged and having fun that's got to be playing on your mind and how do you I guess I, I look at Kyle and I know Kyle loves reading and I do too I'll be honest but the next generation doesn't so how do we fix that you don't there won't be a generation of readers coming up because it's not the only way for them to engage with media of all the different kinds we've got. And reading is not the most engaging thing. It used to be when there weren't that many options. Um, And colour magazines with pictures were fantastic in the day because that was as good as the technology got. Now, YouTube exceeds that for that generation. Podcasts, Facebook, all of those things are so much more accessible and so much more entertaining. It's what they expect. It's what they grow up with. It's like expecting us to going back to riding horses instead of driving cars. It just won't happen. In terms of um, running a magazine, how do you um, face the challenge of always coming up with new content, new ideas? Because I feel like hunting magazines, it'd be very hard to avoid the like monthly 308 versus 3006, which is better. And like so-and-so goes out and shoots some big boars and um, you know, the, this month's tips on how to bag a fallow buck. How, how do you like um, keep the content new and relevant? There's two sides to that. One is what the readers want. And if you go back to the car magazines, wheels and motor in their heyday, when Holden and Ford were both brands that existed in Australia and were making cars, um, if wheels stuck a Holden or a Ford on the cover, the issue would sell like crazy. If they stuck a BMW or something like that on there, it would flop. It was just the readers just wanted Ford and Holden, and Holden was the best. Holden's always sold well. So they they were desperate just to get that content, and they kept feeding it, and the market kept lapping it up. So you're giving people what they want. The other side of that answer is variety, which is what you're really getting at. In our sport, it's not hard to get variety. There is so much variation in what we do and there is so much knowledge to be got out there that you can't run out of things to write about. And, yeah, you can do another 308 versus 3006 comparison, but you've probably got a new audience for it by then. There's there's traditionally about a four-year turnover of interest amongst media Uh, users, people who go into it. And by the time you pull that, even with a a website, you can take a story from five or six years ago, republish it now, update it if you need to, and it'll be a new story for 99.9% of people out there. So there's, it just turns over, but you can't run out of content. There's so many things that we can write about, so much we can publish in this sport. There's just unending. How do you get your content? Where do you get your stories from? Or if, you know, some of our listeners might have a story they want to, I love it when people send me stories or just contact me and say, are you interested? Because the more voices we get, the better the magazine is. But in the end, if I'm short of a certain thing, then I'll go out and commission it from people who I know can give it to me. If I need a filler on, say, Buffalo, I'll go to someone who knows Buffalo and say, can you do a story for me? And most of the time they can. Uh, Otherwise, I've got to chase them from somewhere else, but it's not hard. And in the end, you know, I've only got a certain number of pages every month that I can fill it's not hard to fill it. I've always got much more content than I need. Sticking on the story basis, Ben's a good story writer. I'm not. Well, oh, it, I can I can polish that for you. Well, I, yeah. I can polish all sorts of things, and they come up <laughs> gleaming when it comes is to that, it. Is that My, why Ben's are so good? Have you that's why Ben's are so good. He's got somebody who can polish them. Yeah, um, that's 
the job of an editor is not so much to go out and write about stuff and be the expert on the individual subjects. My job is to make sure that the magazine is balanced and comes across well. So as a sub-editor, which is a slightly different role to an editor, but it's, it's you know, splitting hairs here, my job is to make sure that your amateurly written copy, which is misspelt and the grammar's all poor and everything else, but it's a great yarn, just comes up so that people can read it easily mm. and it's an entertaining read. You put the story together, but I just structure it so it works. I, I'm, I can modify the words to, you know, kingdom come. It's easy to do. The one thing it's harder to do these days is modify photos too much. You know, you can tweak photos, but if you've got a whole lot of rubbish photos, you haven't got a story. So the critical thing is taking lots of photos and a few good ones amongst them. And if you can tell a bit of an entertaining story, I can do the rest. I'm just going to jump in there, Matho. Sorry, fellas. Speaking of editing photos, you are responsible for thousands of dollars of therapy for me since you appeared in the nude in your magazine before you were the editor or sub-editor or whatever the hell you are there now. Let me tell you, your buttock haunts me in my dreams, Matho. And that is a true There are story. thousands of people like that. Thousands of people out there. What's the context? I missed that story. Oh, it's, it's what it looks like is some sort of bony bamboo chopstick with a score from a knife down the middle of it, which forms the crease of the buttock. It's distressing. Distressing for you and a bunch of other people, but I enjoyed it. I'm Tell probably us the, the only person who's appeared full nude in Sporting Shooter in the whole history of the magazine. Again, though, what was the reference? Your thermal hunting? <laughs> no, shooting a fox out the window of the uh, house. There was a fox just about to get some chooks. I'd just stepped out of the shower, straight to the gun safe, pulled a rifle out, rifle in one hand, flapping around down below, <laughs> open the window, shoot the fox. Good story. Yeah, well, how could I resist? How long did you pose for for the photo, though? Oh, well, put it this way. I had to use a tripod and a timer because the wife didn't want to be involved. <laughs> Is it like the title of the sex tape? Tripod and a timer. <laughs> you, you know my nickname then. <laughs> well played. Touche to you. I think we've reached the lows there in terms of hunting publications. <laughs> Moving forward in into yeah the modern world with uh, shooting publications, what role... Do, and this is a question for both of you. What role do these publications play in uh, sort of ensuring that hunting has a, a good image in Australia, in the in the public, and has you know this is a term I saw in an ADA article yesterday. Social license, basically the you know approval to continue. Who would like to, Matt? You just want to jump in and add to that? This is an interesting one because I know you've mentioned it about promoting hunting in a good light, but you know what? There's going to be people out there that will never, ever, it doesn't matter what we do, they will never, ever view hunting as a good thing. And yes, there, there will always be the percentage that are rabidly opposed to it and we, we can't convert them. But I don't what think... what we can do is convince the, uh, the rest of the population that we should continue. I really don't think that you will be able to change people's minds by... You're not getting them. The, the publications, no, I'm sorry, they're not reading Australian Shooter magazine. They're not doing it. So you're not going to change their minds on it. If you jump on YouTube, they are never searching out a hunting video. So I understand that in a perfect world scenario, and I, I'd love it, that changing people's minds to be more pro-hunter, I get it. But I really just don't see it happening because people are judgmental things and they make a judgment without even knowing. But for example, um, you're saying they'll never read a magazine. 
a hunting magazine. True. But Matho, how many times um, in the history of sporting shooting magazine, have you put say a dead elephant on the cover? Never. Because if somebody walked through that, walked past that in a news agent and saw that, that would probably spark outrage. Yeah. The trouble with that, it's a more a commercial decision. If we were to do that, there are news agents who would refuse to stock it. Um, so you can't be too controversial with that sort of stuff if you want to just have your magazine on sale. Otherwise, no one can find it. Getting back to the beginning of the question, you'd be surprised who reads or at least pays attention to not just magazines but YouTube and all the other media. Um, you do see it on social media a fair bit. You get the antis on there. And they are just waiting for one person to step out of line or say the wrong thing or one photo that's not quite right. And magazines, it's the same thing. And the regulators too pay a lot of attention to what goes out there in the media. And they will pick on it. You you see people who lose their licences for a photo on social media. Everyone's paying attention and magazines are no different when it comes to that. So we have to self-censor. Uh, we have to do it for reason, defensive reasons, basically. Um, you've got to make sure that things are legal. I had, we've got competitions where we give away uh, a rifle. We give away a Weatherby rifle in a competition. And I have received a photo only uh, two weeks ago from a father whose 10-year-old son is holding a rifle and a dead fox with a big grin in his face. Got my first fox. It's a 10-year-old son. And as far as I knew in the state that this photo came from, that's underage. But when I looked into it, it turns out I didn't know those laws well enough and that under the circumstances, it was legitimate for a 10-year-old to be shooting a fox um, with a rifle. All the permissions, all of the permits, everything was there and was correct. But that's the sort of thing that we've always got to look out for. That's the most critical thing. If the antis get a little thing that they can whinge about, I don't really care. But when it comes to the regulators, we've got to be on the on the game all the time to make sure that things are right. You, and they will crack down on us if we get it wrong. Do you get much negative feedback or...? No, no, very little. Partly because of how we monitor it and partly because... Uh, I've got a thick skin, so some of the negative feedback is actually good feedback. If the Andes complain about what we're doing, well, most of the time it's good. That means we're doing something well. What are your thoughts on the issue, Ben? Uh, anything particular? Like just media in general? or just in, Do you feel like there's a role that um, print media has to play in educating hunters about the importance of putting forward our, our best foot, put our best foot forward? Yeah, absolutely. I, I truly do. Like as um, and I don't know how relevant it is, but or interesting it is. But then again, I've listened to previous podcasts, and keeping things interesting is not that high a priority. I'm kidding. The the thing with um, uh, I didn't. No one else in my family shot. I, I started at age 25, and my dad had shot a little bit. I, I shot my granddad's. I assume the statute of limitations has run out on this, but my granddad's air rifle. Uh, he was in World War II. He, he had his firearm stored legally in a gun safe 50 years before that became law to do so. And therefore, a lot of the stuff about taking ethical shots and a lot of that education came from the magazines. In fact, my grandfather, when he died, left me a big stack of shooting magazines. and I, I can't remember which particular brand that was, but... I read that stuff and you, you know, safe backdrops and not shooting across water and not shooting on 
on skylines and not shooting at color or movement or a lot of that stuff was drilled in via the magazines. So yeah, definitely with, with magazines or, I mean, Matho and I both know that print media, it has to die a death eventually. It's, and it's an interesting point you make. I'd never considered it before that the problem or the, the limitations of say a podcast or reading things online, are it's just visual. Whereas when you're reading a magazine, you, you touch, there's a tactile thing. You, it's right there. You, you're in that moment. You're not doing something else. You can't, you ever tried to read something and someone interrupts you start having kids and see how that goes for you. So yeah, it's really interesting. So I do think it's really important and I love taking out newbies. Love it. I, I love, and look, Dodge alluded to it earlier. I didn't want to make this sound like an infomercial, but Dodge has come up with this concept of, um, FTB from the beginning, which is a hunter education weekend, which I've been very privileged to be asked to co-host. And I, we have loved the stuff that we've done and hosted. Taking newbies out is awesome because they're enthusiastic. They, they're they not these experts that think they know everything. They're just happy to be. And I, I've been on shooting trips. A little anecdote is I was out with a, some, a group of guys. We were in a ute, two in the front, two in the back. I'd run through the safety things. It was actually my, my cousins or my uncle's property uh, up at Walker and said he didn't feel comfortable. They were his mates. Okay. So that's me. So I'm the safety officer because I know how these things can go wrong. He's 15 years younger than me. So I said, if somebody's shooting and only the licensed guys were shooting, the other people were just spotting, come on for the ride. No one gets out of the vehicle. And I said, we spotted a fox or rabbit, whatever it was. And I was shooting and the scope went black for a second in the spotlight. And what had happened was someone in the car in the front of the ute had got out thinking we were shooting the other way and had walked in front of the rifle. And that was it. So firearms packed away, end of night, everything over to avoid that. that a freak once in a lifetime accident is one too many, which can't be afforded. And I think that a lot of, a lot of that stuff it wasn't taught to me by a father or a grandfather or an auntie, or it doesn't have to be male dominated, but anybody who shot was picked up via the, it was print media at the time. And as Matho said, it is going to change to online stuff, but to strongly encourage ethical shots and, and safety the country I've talked about a lot in this podcast has been my hunting partner for nearly 20 years. We will still, before we put a rifle away in the back of a vehicle, we will know that it's empty, point the rifle to the sky, slap the trigger, trigger openly in front of the other person. You see, this is safe. Yep. Before we put it away, we do that to each other after 20 years of hunting together. We have never had even a near miss or a close call because you can't afford one. So I, I think it's really, it's important. interesting too. Uh, one difference between the old style magazine journalism that I grew up with and was trained into and modern media online is simply editing. It's the filter. There's a filter that goes through traditional journalism that online stuff these days doesn't have. And this is no criticism of you guys, but you can start a podcast. You can get out there and you can talk and present yourselves as experts but where's the training? Where's the background? Where's anything that says that you're actually validated to do this sort of stuff? Whereas uh, one thing I love about magazines is that in most cases, at least in a professional publishing house, somebody who makes it to editor has been through uh, a cadetship, worked from the ground up and been trained in journalism and all aspects of it, the legal aspects, the wordsmithing of it, the ethics of it, the whole lot. And there's a code to follow and everything else. 
And that's one of the things that I hope does carry through into the future of all media and that the ones who survive and the ones that people do pay attention to are the ones that have got people who really are credible behind them. And I know you guys have got it because what you're presenting is stuff you know. But there's so many examples out there of people who just get on there. You know, you look at your average forum, which uh, is just anybody going on there, and so the loudest voice will come across as the one who's the most knowledgeable. But often they've got shit for brains. They don't know a thing. So that's one thing I'm quite proud of in my profession. You know, at least we're trained. We're, we know how to do a job well and how to present information that's factual and educational and that will set people on the right path. Do you think... I mean, looking at media, the media copping a real backlash at the moment, especially there's usually a political bias from a lot of the big mainstream media. Do you think that's an issue? And also, if you're moving away from the print and you're going into like the website sort of thing, I don't know about you guys, but any time I click on a link that's clickbait and it goes and tells me to pay money, oh, that just turns me straight off and I unfollow straight away. So how do you, you know, is there any ideas on how to attract those people and engage the audience and sort of achieve what you want to achieve, promote, build, etc., without it being print? Yeah. The actual format makes no difference. It can be print, can be online, can be television, can be whatever. It's still media. So we'll just consider it all media. But it's how it's presented and how professional it is. And there's proof in the traditional media that it can be political. You can be Alex Jones and lie through your teeth in all sorts of horrible ways and get away with it for a very long time and have a huge following and make enormous money. Um, you can do what Murdoch does, who's heavily biased towards the right wing of politics and supports it uh, heavily, but comes across as being just another media magnate who is presenting information and correct information. And who can really argue with that? You know, in many ways, he's correct, even though he's biased. But the obviousness of that sort of bias does do the general media no favours. Absolutely. I agree with that. And that's one reason why it does copper bashing. Uh, a lot of that bashing comes from people who are ignorant or who have another agenda. So there's millions of different arguments there. What you said about, you know, identifying the clickbait and switching off, it's the consumers of the media out there who've got to make the decision about what they think is credible and what they follow. And if media is followed, it will be successful. If it's not followed, it will fail. If I can't make sporting shooters digital presence worth following, it will fail. doesn't matter whether I'm biased or not, but if it's not worth following, if we're blatant about something that people don't like, we'll fail. Simple as that. That's one thing I love about it. I was just going to say, I'm uh, I just put a PTA in. And, you know, there's a lot of experience in this podcast at the moment. I'm thinking of going, I've changed the mind. I know I told the boys I was thinking 308 going down that track. <laughs> I'm now thinking I might go a seven millimeter 08. You're exploring media bias here. Now, no, I just, I'd love to, I like to tap into, you know, the wealth of knowledge that we've got here. My only concern about the, that caliber is the accessibility and, you know, would you ever buy a seven millimeter 08 or would you, you know, go down the typical 308 path? I seriously considered it because I love the idea of it. It's got a few little tiny advantages that really work over a 308, but not many. And 308, hands down. Um, you can't beat bread and butter. And to my mind, I was listening to a couple of podcasts before, um, you talked about calibres, but to my mind, 2 to 3 and 308, if you've got those two and a 22, you can't go wrong. Mm -hmm. 
Anything else is just then going into what you prefer rather than what's most sensible. It's, yeah, you can't, I wouldn't get a 7 mil 08 unless I just really wanted to play around with something. If I was just buying a rifle to shoot stuff in that sort of range, 308, because it's just so easy and there's so much ammo available. Our New Zealand guns are 7 mil rem mag. I'm not sure about the difference between that and an 08. Lots. But, um, well, okay, well, it's got a 7 at the front. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not a gun nut by any yeah. means. Uh, it's all smart. He was agent, something 7, 007 or something. Yeah. Carry on, Dodge. Well, no, good one, buddy. The circle that closes in and the... Yeah, yeah, uh, yep, you yeah. got it. It's got yeah, a no, seven, seven, isn't it? Seven it's like, you know, Dodge and Dodgy. There's only a Y between them, but, you know, how, how different can it be? Yeah, very minimal <laughs> difference. It's the same. Well, very similar outcomes with both. No, anyway. Okay, well, my point's irrelevant then because they're different guns. So. Seven mil oh eight is three oh eight neck down to take a seven millimeter projectile. What's a seven mil rem mag? A magnum. Yeah, belted magnum with a lot more power. <laughs> Just kick me while I'm down. So the same projectile with a hell of a lot more power power behind it. Yeah, right. um, so like so, 22 versus 22 Magnum, that's what we're talking about, right? Look, and I, yeah. just to butt in, is I, I've actually uh, was invited to do a talk at one of the Shot Expos about calibers, selection and, and game. And, and I butt in on that and say it was that good of a talk that they didn't record the audio. He had to yeah. reshoot the audio. Was that your yeah. fault? No, 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 no. It was, uh, I can't remember whose fault that was. Yeah, yeah I remember it. It was, it was terrible. It wasn't, it wasn't yours. It was, it was, look, they might've done it by choice. They might've listened to it and just said, let's just delete it. Ben sucks. Anyway, point being that I'd done the research irrespective and I got relatively strong. I, I completely agree with, with Matho with the, with the caliber stuff is if you want, it, it comes back to that masturbatorial thing. If you want to have a play around with cartridges, go right ahead. Uh, Go fancy, but your basic stuff. So 308, so I've had shoulder operations, so I like slightly lower recall. So my, I like 243. Does almost what a 308, well, as far as I'm concerned. Guys are arguing about 100 feet second, feet per second. The animal can't tell the difference. They all end up dead. It really doesn't matter. I've saw, as I said, two single shot buffalo kills with a 306. I put a muzzle brake on mine just prior to, to the trip. Now that's at the lighter end. I'm not. I'm not denying that. And you want to be a competent shot, and the animal's got to present a correct manner, and all that sort of stuff. Rear end raking shots, different thing altogether, or quartering away. But yeah, once you start going, and I wanted stuff that I could forget to take. Two, two, three, two, four, three, three oh eight ammo. Arrive somewhere, having driven and gone. <gasps> thank goodness, the local gun shop, local dealer, will almost certainly have the stuff that I shoot. And you're then going to be all right, which is the other part of it. But yes, you want to tweak guys, you know, that, that counterball stuff and go overboard and you know, good luck to them. They're just tweaking with it, but I agree with Matho. The, the, the basic stuff is it's, it's been around for forever for a reason. It works. The seven mil 08, um, who knows what that costs compared to say a 308 or a 243 in um, terms of a box of ammo, it would be a fair bit more expensive, wouldn't it? No idea. I even worked in a gun shop and I don't remember even seeing it in the gun shop. Right. So your choice is going to be quite limited. limited. Yeah. Severely You're not going to rock up at a random gun shop and be able to buy it. Yep, but Matha, you, you, you can show up and you can buy 243, 243, 223, 22, 22 mag, 306, yep. 308. I think I said that. Anywhere. Yep. It's the, they're the Hyundai's and Kia's of the shooting world. Yeah, you get them everywhere. They work. You're not going to have a problem with them. Every say Toyota Hilux because I was going to say it's like Ben Unton. Like I'm not sexy, but I work. You know, it's the same thing. 
No, I think that's good advice. I just like to be different. So, like, when I look at everyone's got a 308, and I was like, eh, I might yeah, do something. Nothing wrong with that. Just prepared for the uh, the fun that comes with being different, the yeah. difficulties. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, I've had different calibers that were a bit odd and thoroughly enjoyed them. Um, but I'll always have a 2 to 3 and I'll always have a 308. Have you got a worst or least favourite? Um, probably 243 because I didn't see the point. Um, oh, just take wow. a it does everything this is, better. This whole thing's taken a whole dive south. <laughs> there um, you go. 0.5 instead of a 243. Yeah, right. Realistically, I'm only looking at it because I eventually want to get down to Victoria and they've got obviously calibre minimums for different species. So you've got to be above 270. But, yeah, interesting. Thanks for the... So 270 is a cracking... To, just to, 270 to is a ripper. It's a cracking calibre. And a funny I, way to look at it. Is you know how a 3006 is a big 308? You know, 308 is a more efficient 3006. A uh, 7 mil rem mare, sorry, a 7 mil 08 is the equivalent to 270. It's the same case step down, it's the same calibers. Because um, a 270 is effectively the perfect 7 mil. There's a fraction difference if you want to split hairs in the actual projectiles. Um, but it's still both of them shoot a 130 grain projectile, ideal. It's the 3006 case goes to 270 and the 308 case goes to 7 mil 08. So same thing. Which is interesting because the reason I was looking at the 7 mil 08 was it's a bigger bullet. So it's a 284 diameter bullet. So it's a bit bigger than 270, but it's got a hell of a lot less recoil as well. So that was why I was looking at going, I'm well and truly over the 270 mark that you need down in Vic, but less recoil, which I think is a benefit just to, you mm-hmm. know, if you need to throw yep. a second shot. So, yeah, that's why I was looking at it. Yep, yep. Just make sure you've got plenty of ammo in stock and away you go. Yeah, you reload, nice. Matt. Mate, I sent you that photo today. No, I'm only joking. I'll put that photo on our socials for our listeners. It was someone posted this reloading um, and there was the geez the necks and it was just horrible. The bullets were terrible in this, in the cases. And I'll put it up. It's pretty funny. But no, I don't. So it that, looked like a stripper clip of um, five five six, probably taken off the battlefield or something. It, it was all dented and projectiles um, like pounded in and stuff like that. And the yeah, the caption was like, "I've been reloading. We're good to go." It's pretty funny. I'll put it up. Yeah, Everyone will love yeah. it. No, I don't. So that is one of the things with the 7 mil 08. I think that it's a, um, the only thing putting me off it is the availability of ammo. Mm. Yeah. And that's you don't really reload, disadvantage. Yeah. If you don't reload, you're up against it. Like I deliberately don't reload because I'm a sort of bloke would just sit in a little windowless room with one of those hats with a propeller on my head, trying to get my groups down from a thumbnail to a pinky thumbnail, you know, uh, it just, yeah, too much. And you go broke trying to save money. These are the factory stuff. Matho, I'm sure, will tell you. The factory stuff is that good, hard to beat, so consistent. I've never been away with a guy, and I've taken a lot of newbies uh, shooting with me to try sort of touch on what we mentioned earlier about sort of growing the sport. And we're a bit different to our uh, cousins in the States in that I think more shooters in Australia is a better thing. In the States, they're worried about overcrowding. Oh, I don't see that's a big problem in Australia. We just don't have the population. We don't have the, the numbers. So to get more shooters in. Uh, but, yeah, the, the the problems that they've experienced is the guy who reloads and he gets misfires or suddenly it's all over the place. I, I took a guy away who had a twenty two two fifty that he reckons he could put it in the eye of a gnat at 1,000 yards and – all sorts of problems, missed everything, uh, winged one thing to the point where I said, look, I think that's, if you're not confident with that rifle, it's not printing, it's not ethical or humane, 
let's maybe put that at one away and grab your, he had a 250 and a 308. Let's grab the 308, which he did. He then went back home because I, and I didn't give him a hard time about it because there's no point, but I think he was a bit cheapish about it and said, I found out that I had tweaked the wobulator and we ended up with a quarter of a charge more or less or something. The things were all over the shop. They weren't firing. They were, it was no good. That, that has never happened to anybody that I've taken away with the factory stuff. And I'm not talking people against reloading, but these days, man, the factory stuff is so consistent and, and so good. And it's, it's really, by the time you set up for reloading, it's not really cheaper uh, unless you're doing a heap of it. So yeah, I like the factory stuff yeah. and readily available. I think as hunters, like if you, if you're primarily a hunter, like how much ammo are you going through in a year? Yep. Unless you're culling. Um, and even then, if say if you were culling ruse, 223 is the cheapest of the centerfire. Like it's really probably not worth it as a hunter unless there's specific loads, specific requirements that you're, you're trying to hand load. And, um, and even I've, I've gone through the similar sort of, you know, uh, mental arithmetic of, you know, should I get into reloading? Should I not? Uh, I still am an R about it, but I just come back to, you know, I go through like, you know, a box or two of ammo a year. And I, I went away, I shot ruse under tags and a mate had a 308 that he was reloading for, and I had the 223 that you mentioned for kangaroos. And his 308s, either the projectiles were too tough and they were just punching sort of a, a pencil size or a pinky size hole straight through the animal. The 223 was far more explosive, did far more damage, was far more effective. So it actually yeah, wasn't more effective, wasn't more successful. There you go. So... I'm, you know, obviously a bit hamstrung at the moment with the new kids and whatnot. I won't be able to get down to the dinner tomorrow night for the hunting club. And as the guest speaker, can I get a bit of a hint at what you're going to be talking about? I'm um, obviously the podcast will air afterwards. So what is on the cards so I don't have to pay my $50 and get down there? (laughs) The central theme that I'm going to tackle being in the media is the influence that we can have. Uh, and we have touched on this in this conversation this evening. It's the influence that the media can have. It's the influence that hunting clubs can have. It's the influence that podcasts can have. Right down to the influence that the individual hunter can have to improve our sport, to make sure that we're seen in a good light, to get new people involved in it. And the punchline essentially is work within your sphere of influence and do what you can. There's no point trying to work outside it. We can all make a difference. We can all do something positive to make sure that the sport of hunting uh, continues and that it's seen in a good light. But all you've got to do is do what you can within your sphere of influence. So as an editor, as a magazine editor, as, as somebody doing a website, um, I'll push pretty hard. The Windsor Carabee uh, Hunting and Angling Club. Um, it's a mouthful. Yep. They do a great job. You know, you're getting locals involved in your teaching, getting new people into it, teaching you how to shoot and how to hunt. That's the best we can do. If we all do that sort of thing and do it actively, then I see a positive future. We're certainly going to have our challenges, but we've just got to fight the challenges and keep promoting ourselves. And I guess that's probably the ultimate goal is this is a passion that I want my kids to enjoy as well, and I'm sure we're all the same. Definitely. Absolutely. So the more we feed people game meat that they like, the more we come across as being smart, intelligent and rational people who carry guns, the better off we all will be. Kyle's mentioned this before and it's like we keep bringing it up, but I think it's just become a bit of a central theme. It's not that we need more people that are pro hunting. We just need more people that are 
okay with us hunting or mm-hmm. they don't have to be involved in it themselves, but they just... As long as they're sympathetic to what we do. Yeah, just just appreciate what we can do and say, hey, those guys aren't actually what, you know, they can be portrayed as. Yeah, uh, the stereotypes don't do us any favours and the whole comparison with American gun culture does us no favours either. No. You've got my whole talk to the club tomorrow. That's in it. In about, what, two yeah, minutes? Don't bother. Thanks. Yeah. You just, just saved me 50 card. bucks. Get a, get a Matho cardboard cutout and just yeah, play that. Right. Listen to the podcast and get me a beer. So that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. My check will be in the mail. <laughs> Done and dusted. Happy days. You have one more question there, Carl? Yeah, just talking about calibers. Um, a question for both our guests. What was, well, two questions, two-part question. What was your first rifle that you got? Do you still have it? Why, why not? And what's your go-to hunting rifle? What's your favourite rifle, model, calibre? Matho? Take that one, Matho. Go, go first. first. Yeah, the first thing, first rifle I ever had, other than marking around with a twenty-two, but the first one I owned was twenty-two to fifty. Uh, a Tika 594, I think, or something. It was back in the, uh, the 80s. Uh, and it was a ripper of a rifle. Fantastic. And the only reason I don't have it anymore is because we sold the property that we had, moved back to town, didn't have any use for it and sold it. And I'd broken the butt hitting a pig with it. But You know, the idea is not to use as a club. Use the bang-bang part with the bullets out the end. The wacky-wacky part can be done with other sticks. But anyway, carry on. Well, you know, I was young. I didn't know any better, and I thought that it would you know, hurt the pig more than the rifle, but it turns out the pig was fine and the rifle wasn't. <laughs> Did you run out of ammo? Uh, no, I was just chasing it, and, you know, it was a piglet. I wanted to catch it, so I thought I'd just knock it and knock it over. But anyway, that's that's well in the past. That was back in the 80s. That was the old days, before 1996. Nowadays, I think my general go-to rifle is a two two three, but... I don't have a scope on my 223 at the moment. I haven't really missed it because I've got a lot of other things I've been enjoying playing with, including up to a 9.3 by 62. That's great fun. So, no, go to is 223, though. Definitely. It's amazing. I was just, okay. I was just pointing at Dodge there because, um, you know, Dodge is a big proponent of the 223 and, and I've had one and loved it. Actually, Matho, back in the day, I won the Sporting Shooter magazine back when it was the competition, back when it was a Savage 223. I got, um, and yeah, with your single shot shotgun. Yep. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. You remember the photo? What? I, I heard I, the story on the podcast. I, I talked about it on the podcast, yeah. Is that yeah. for real? Yeah, I sent in a photo with um a couple of rabbits and a single barrel shotgun that my uncle gave Good me. Good for you. And I, yeah, I got that that email from Marcus O'Dean saying, you know, what's he nominated? Firearms mm-hmm. dealer. And I was like, whoa, you know, over the moon. Did you win two? No, that was Goose. He won twice. In two months in a row or something? No, it wasn't two months in a row. It was like, a couple of years apart, but yeah, he won twice. Run, won the same gun twice. Yeah, I can highly yeah. recommend people enter the competition because we we give away twelve guns a year and people do win them. Yep, and the um, I'm not sure what the runner-up prizes are now. Maybe you can fill me in, but um, the runner-up prizes are good too. It's merchandise for the runner-ups, you know, hack okay. caps and stubby holders and stuff, but they're all good. Yep, Ben, what was your first rifle? Yeah, so I had a Sterling. 22 Magnum, done all the research, which <clears throat> this is a few years ago, so it wasn't as easy to access as it is now. I still like, I still don't own a 22. I like the 22 Mag over the 22. It's just that little bit more punch. I hit stuff with, hit rabbits with a 22 and they'd be dead, but they'd disappear down the burrow and I couldn't eat them. So I like the 22 Magnum. I don't have it anymore. I handed it in because, and it was apparently, I don't want to slag off the Sterlings, but the, I don't even know if they're still around, but with the very old rifles, one shot in 50, you might just close the bolt and it would just discharge. You ever heard of that, Mick, when you're working the gun shop? Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah, so, had that. Yeah, yeah ter- terrifying, like lethal, horrible, d- uh, frightening. So I, I took it to a gun shop, and a gunsmith, and, and again, didn't really know anything, and, and he said, look, all I can do is replace it. With, it was the bolt, I think, was the fault. He said I could replace it with another bolt. He said, but it's it's a bit of a problem with these. So I took it into my little quick sidebar. I took it into my local police station, and I went in first with no firearm and said, I've got a firearm on a hand in. It's not safe um, to be destroyed. Took it in. I didn't own a, a gun bag, and I'd stitched together two pillow slips end to end and cut a hole in the end of it, wrapped it in that. So uh, today you you wouldn't make it through the front door. You'd be drilled full of lead. So I, I I had this thing, which was clearly a firearm. It couldn't be anything else. My fishing rod collection. Anyway, went in, and it was a lady uh, police officer behind the desk. Straight away, when she was looking for the, I passed it to her, I said, laid it uh, between us horizontally so that the muzzle was pointed in a safe direction. And, and I said, it's not loaded. Is the bolt separate? All that stuff. Uh, when she picked it up, it automatically, her figure went to the trigger, like just cradled the, the trigger on this thing. And I thought, gosh, if you've, I mean, I, I've been in a firearm shop where I've been passed a firearm that I'm looking to buy with the bolt closed. And I've stepped back and said, to the person serving said, can you just open the bolt on that, please? Even though I know the chance of it being loaded is one in a billion. Like I said before, that one freak accident in your lifetime is one too many. They have opened the bolt and passed it to me. And yet this police officer finger cradled the trigger just immediately. Anyway, so I handed that in and got rid of it and replaced it with another 22 mag. My go-to these days, and I am recall sensitive. I've had a shoulder operation for deer, but I put a muzzle brake on it. The 243, despite Matho's objections, I just love, I've probably shot, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and and 100 deer, and I reckon a lot of them were shot with a 243. But if I come across something bigger, a red deer, or I want the 306, and it's extremely accurate, I put a muzzle brake on it to help with the recoil, um, shooting 150s, you know, every rifle I think has its its caliber, its uh, projectile range, but it's got a sweet spot. The 150, I believe, is it for the 306. It's extremely accurate. I don't can't think of too many things that I've had to put a second follow up shot in. It's accurate. If I do my job, it falls to the ground. It's loud. It recalls loudly. Love the 223 for smaller game, but most of the stuff I'm doing these days is deer, mostly fallow. But there's a chance of reds or Russell or something bigger around. So I want something that I know has got, got the knockdown. I can get the ammo for it everywhere. It took Buffalo in the Northern Territory with a 220 grain factory projectile. Yeah, kind of love it. Yeah. And when you say so what's your go-to gun again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen, listen, listen. Since you bagged it and said the 308 was better, everybody switched off. So let's turn back on for that bit. That'll bring the people back. That'll put bums on seats. That's what we're talking about here. <laughs> So when you say two, four, three for deer, you're saying mainly fallow deer. Correct. Nothing yeah. bigger. Yeah. Nothing bigger. And in fact, I think the minimum recommended caliber for red deer in New South Wales is 270. Is that right, everybody? I recommended, recommended, yes. Recommended, not, yeah. not legislated, but recommended. No, and I have shot I have shot deer. I mean, it's another question for another podcast, but I like rounds that don't penetrate right through, that expend all their energy within the animal. I found that most of those drop in a much smaller sort of chase zone rather it's than... It's funny, 308 will do that and just about anything oh, from yeah, fallow listen, to red deer. Listen, we, can you believe this? From the northwestern hemisphere of the four grid screens we've got up here on the Zoom, which I know this is a podcast and you can't see it. Listen, there's a lot of noise coming from the northwestern hemisphere. Let me point that out. Yeah, the only reason I got a 30.06 is because I wanted something bigger but not, not a 308. 
There you go. I've, did I mention your voice about how soothing and velvety and interesting I find it? I did. You, you mention it again. Good opinion. It's worth it. It's worth it. Anyway, as you mentioned, so on the cover uh, last month of Australia <laughs> was. Can I get a signed copy, Ben? Yes, you may. Absolutely. Thank I've you. Got, when I come I've in got, for for heaters, thanks. I must say, in the in the Midwest, there were eleven copies sold because I bought ten of them. So, I remember Cleo and Cosmo used to get a lot of grief for photoshopping the models on their covers, but looking at that, I can see why they L- did. Listen, ask Bandit. No one treats you with any credibility since I've seen your rotten, smooth crack in a nationally publicated magazine. Forget it. Look like, not, feed steak. Look like you need a feed of steak and eggs. Never seen such a skinny clacker. Will that be seen at the presentation at the hunting club tomorrow? Uh, I've got it on an overhead projector. Uh, actually, Dodger's got that as a full life. I can give a live demonstration room. if you prefer. <laughs> yeah, Dodger's got that photo. It's special. Let me tell you, that's that photo has seen some. It's got some mileage on it in Dodger's special place. Anyway, now that us professionals doing as reveal ourselves, what other questions have you got? Well, speaking of questions, we have a segment on here that Dodge, like even though we've got the audio clip, Dodge loves to go. Go on, Dodge. Shots fired. Shots fired. It sounds better when I do it. Yeah, so I've got a question here from Rob. Um, just firstly, um, give us you know, a bunch of compliments. Um, so that he's enjoying the podcast. Thanks a lot, Rob. Really appreciate the support. I didn't say that. No, I've chucked that in. That's what he's thinking. <laughs> <laughs> he says, so I've just bought my uh, first house on 25 acres. I'm excited about doing a little more hunting there. Plenty of rabbits around. Mrs. Makes good rabbit casserole. Good on you. He's got some bow hunting experience. Spends a lot of time in the great outdoors, camping and fishing. Wants to do more hunting with firearms. He's planning on joining a local hunting club. That's a good first step. And uh, he's going to get his firearms license and all that. And then he wants you know, a bit of advice on his first rifle. Because there's bunnies and a few foxes around, he's thinking about a 223, maybe a Steyr Scout or similar. Uh, what do we think? Would it do the job? Any other advice would give a, a beginner. And also any advice on um, butchering resources online. 308. I mean, we spoke about the 308 all night. I reckon that will really go nice. We'll protect ourselves. Mudgee is famous as being reputedly the beginning of the blocky places. The old term blockies was invented back in the 70s when they broke up land into 25 acre blocks and sold it off. Mudgee is famed as being the beginning of all of that. Uh, There's lots of them around there. The registry these days views a 25-acre block as being fine for a Category A licence, but pushing your luck for a Category B firearm. So basically a shotgun or a 22 short-range stuff is fine on 25 acres, especially if you've got rabbits and stuff like that. But if you've got bigger game, if you want to shoot things bigger, if you want a Category B licence basically and get a centrefire with longer range, you're going to have to find... Uh, either another block that you can get permission to hunt on or join the hunting club so you've got access through them or something like that. The registry, not always, but generally will frown on giving anybody Category B if all they've got is their own 25-acre lot. So you're going to have to look elsewhere to get that. So a hunting club. Um, I don't know of a hunting club in Mudgee. SSAA does have a Mudgee branch, which is you know they do hunting. That's the only one I know of, but I don't know if there's any other specific ones. I know that Shorties, Mudgy Firearms, um, they've probably got a few good contacts there, so drop in and see them. 
But, yeah, just keep that in mind. 25 mm-hmm. acres in New South Wales, the registry will say, yeah, Category A, no problems. But Category B, you're probably going to have to go and find something else, uh, letter of permission from a landowner or membership of a hunting club, something like and, that. And just on that, the safe shooting distance of a centrefire versus a rimfire, I don't know if this is around other built-up areas or whatever, if he's just shooting rabbits, 22 mag or 22, uh, 22 mag to about 100 metres, 22 to maybe 75 metres, um, depending on what projectile you're using, more than adequate, better for the table. I've shot rabbits with a 223 that like came pre-stewed. You couldn't have scraped up enough of the blood and bits to put into stew. It just turns into pulp. So way overgunned yeah, in my You'd have opinion. to head shoot them with the 223. Even then, I've, I've done that and blown the front third yep. of the body off. Like fun also, the issue, also the issue of your neighbours, though. Well, if, if they complain to the police, then you risk losing your licence. Yeah, it depends on how the complaint is and how vocal yeah. they are, et cetera, et cetera. So there's also... Yeah. And that's irrelevant of calibre. If he wants to ping a 12-gauge in 25 acres, that's that's noisy. And the 22 Magnum, which, uh, look, I might as well say I'm, I'm officially sponsored by, but the 22 Magnum now comes in subsonics. So it's now quite around, again, or, or 22 more than adequate. Yep, 17 HMR, another um, good choice too. Yes, but louder. Yep, but yep. Yep, a bit more of a crack to it. If he's you know, planning to shoot more than his own 25 acres, if he's got larger properties, wants to go state forest, that sort of stuff, I think 223 is a fine choice for a first centrefire. Yeah, um, first centrefire, definitely. Yeah, yeah the style of scout that he mentioned, I don't have any experience with any of you guys. Excellent rifles, yeah. Very good rifle. From memory, no longer sold new, though there may be some stocks in certain shops. Um, but, yeah, it's a great rifle. Very accurate, very reliable, well-built. Built-in thing. Yep. Built-in bipod? Yep. Yeah, I think bipod. that's what he liked about it. He liked the, yeah. the built-in bipod. Um, we also said, obviously, like, you know, your tickers, howers, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, it there's... depends on budget. The yep. thing is, if you especially 223, there's a few rifles aren't available in 223, usually American ones, because all their 223s are in AR platforms. Um, so the bold action rifles tend to be a bit longer, 22250 as a minimum. Um, but most most rifles, bold action rifles, you can get in 22, in sorry, 223. And there's so many out there to fit your budget, you can get all sorts of things. But yeah, if he wants a star and it's in his budget, good thing. And my advice too was to maybe go to a, a bigger gun shop that has you know those different models of rifles and say, okay, I want a two two three. What can I get that comes chambered a two two three and have a hold of them rather than just buying one because it looks good. You think it looks good, the features sound good, but then you might hold it and think, gee, I can't really get my cheek down. One thing I'll say, uh, having handled and used a lot of firearms. Um, you can go into a shop and handle them and see all the details and you get a pretty good impression of what you think of them. Um, firing them gives you a little bit more of an impression, but most of it's in the carrying. But just a couple of minutes in a gun shop, you're not really going to learn a hell of a lot. That's where joining the, the hunting club works if you can go and handle a whole lot of different firearms. And, of course, sure. if, you're, if you're looking at a, a Tika and a Ruger and a Steyr, it doesn't matter what calibre they are because they can be chambered in anything. It's the same rifle but go and handle it and talk to the people who are using them and form an idea of what you think is good. Inevitably, with a few years' experience under your belt, you'll probably change your mind. That's <laughs> just yeah. the way it works, of course, as you learn more. But, yeah, if you put a bit of time into going into the gun shops and handling them, but going down to the gun, sh- gun club and preferably spending some time with them and speaking to people who've gone, you've got a really good idea of what really is good and worthwhile getting it's, and what you like. It's one of the main reasons we run our range days 
with our club because there's enough members there that we bring a range of guns and the new members can come and handle, mm. look through, but also shoot um, just from a caliber point of view, but also just different brands. So definitely recommend that one. But talking about bigger gun shops, Cole, Mudgee is actually a pretty good shop. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's not a little dinky dike country shop that's got boxes of ammo behind the counter and two guns. It's, uh, yeah, they've got a pretty good range in there. It's worth going in and trying them. Mm. Uh, the second part of his question was uh, butchering resources online. I recommended Scott Ree on YouTube, who's an English fella who does all sorts of butchery. I basically taught myself how to butcher deer based on his YouTube video. I remember my first deer hanging in dad's shed, had the laptop there with the video, um, I'd play a section and then pause it and then go and do that section on that deer and then play again, you know, did it section by section. And um, so that's my recommendation. And my other advice was to just, you know, go and buy say a five or six inch boning knife and get into it and start having a go. Um, what would you gentlemen say in terms of online resources? I don't know of any better than that necessarily. No, there's plenty I've seen, but I can't, none of them come to mind. So yeah, if you want to recommend that, I think it's probably good. Well, for me, so I started, there was magazine stuff like, and photographs as opposed to video is a lot, lot harder to follow, but yes. Um, I'd never had the advantage of being able to work. So I started on rabbits and then moved up to sort of goats and then moved up to deer. I still feel the anatomy is loosely the same, more or less the same, really. Um, shoulder knuckles aside, Dodge. Anyway, um, you should probably too quickly mention the shoulder knuckle. Go on. Well, it happened at his place. Matho then. Mention the shoulder. And I'll, I'll come back to, to butchering in a minute. I forget that we're on Zoom and I'm pointing at Matho, but... Yeah, um, nice one, mate. No one can see you, buddy. Head for I radio. I won't say who it is, but they're probably pretty easy to work out because I haven't been up there with many people, but shot a goat and it came time to, you know, take some meat off and I started ripping through the shoulder and the buddy I was with, who remained unnamed, said, oh, you're about to hit the shoulder knuckle. And, I, you know, animal was on its back with legs up in the air and I was cutting through that real soft stuff under the armpit it's really just connective tissue. There's no meat. And he said, yeah, hold up. You're about to hit the shoulder knuckle. And I just, I, I paused for a second until what, what does that comment even mean? Hold on. I'll, no, I'll keep going. So I played along. I said, oh, where is it? You know, when, oh, no, it's coming up soon. It's got, oh, oh, you're at the hair on the other side. This one doesn't have a shoulder knuckle. I said, no, no animal has a shoulder knuckle. <laughs> Not a thing. He what was, he's got is a f- knuckle. <laughs> Ruin the whole story. It's going to be sorry. Busy. No, it was so good till then. Keep going. Don't stop. You're a oh. uh, Anyway, no, that's a, so it's an ongoing joke that uh, we refer to shoulder knuckles as non existent. Yeah, it's bunyips. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So, yeah, <laughs> starting on rabbits and working your way up there. But even then, you get to the point after not that long where you work out about the cuts you want. So now, when I'm butchering deer in the field, I'm thinking about what I want to cook with it, like the other end yes. of it. So I take very different cuts to what I would or very, very different butchering technique to what I would have years ago when I started. Cause now I know exactly, I just want to do the neck hole uh, and pull it off as, as pulled as I can put it in so many meals. I want to do the shoulders as this, I trim out the rump. I want to make venison with it, the back straps. And I feel it's now I smoke, which I never used to. Um, and not with a proper smoker, just with a Weber Q barbecue with the smoker trays in it. Just spectacular. So yeah, get out there and, and get dirty really is as the research is great. But once you, you know the basic cuts, like what once you which you can find everywhere, then yeah, do it. You can get too bogged down in technicalities and you're not gonna do it like a butcher. 
I butchered hundreds, maybe 500 animals, maybe more, including domestic animals, and no butchers looking over their shoulder thinking, oh, Uncle Ben might get into butchery. Like, But it's presented to my family for meat on the table. It's a success as far as I'm concerned. My trim pile might be bigger, so I bought an electric grinder. So then I got mince as well. Like, It's not that hard. Don't overcomplicate it. Yeah, and the um, good thing about Scott Ree that I mentioned on YouTube there, he actually does different videos of, say you get a deer and you want lots of steaks, this is how you do it. You get a deer and you want lots of roasts, this is how you do it. And he you know, presents sort of four or five different ways to butcher a deer, which is really handy in terms of resources. But like you say, you're not going to be as fast as a butcher. It might take you a day or even two days to do your first animal, just doing it sort of step-by-step, cut-by-cut. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. And just take the time to, you know, make it, you know, halfway presentable, especially if you're going to gift somebody a piece of meat. You know, I give people meat um, sometimes and they look and they go, oh, where'd you get this process? And I say, oh, I did it myself. I say, oh, it looks like it came from a butcher. But, you know, you take that time to, to trim it up and put it in the vacuum sealer or a freezer bag or whatever, and it um, looks like meat from a shop. Bit of parsley on there too. Yeah, one oh, yeah. thing... One thing I can highly recommend if you've got it in your budget and only if you're doing a reasonable amount of it, if you're not doing much butchering at all, it's not worth it. But if you're doing it regularly, buy yourself a bandsaw, a meat saw, um, because it makes life so much easier and the whole process a heap quicker. Um, really good investment, but only if you're doing enough of it to justify it. Right now, did that uh, cover your question completely, Kyle? Yeah, I think so. Thanks, Rob, for sending that question in. I think that should be helpful for a lot of people. I think uh, we'll just wrap this up now with some final thoughts. If anyone's got anything, I know Mick and I got to go out here and make our lunch in a minute because we're heading out in the morning for an early hunt. Oh, no, please don't let us get in the way of your stomach, Dodge. Sorry, brother. I didn't realize. Well, Mate, I'm you... sorry. Oh, I don't, guys, I feel terrible. Dodge has got to eat. He's like a newborn. Ben, 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 there's nothing much can get in the way of his stomach. It just pushes everything out of its way. Oh. Oh, there you go. Now you're getting from us like a D10 dozer. No, please. It's like, chef, Dodge has got to eat. Dodge, don't you just take like cube Devon and cheese or something for your hunting lunches? I've seen your hunting lunches. Yeah, Cavanossi, cheese, Cavanossi. I said sandwich, didn't I? Like, <laughs> that's all you need. That's uh, that's the staple. No, we, we're heading out early in the morning, chasing some fallow around. Half your luck. Good stuff. Hopefully. It's um, yeah. pretty good weather lately. A bit of rain the other day, but it's going to be gumboot kind of weather. Not, uh, yeah, it's going to be wet. What about anyone else? Any final thoughts on this evening's? That's been good. I just quickly want to say, all joking aside, really, really love what you guys are doing. Really appreciate it. Uh, keep up the great stuff. Uh, great to talk to some old mates and make some new ones. And, uh, yeah, really enjoy what you're doing. And, yeah, please keep it going. Very, very happy to privilege to be invited. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Keep it up. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for being on. And um, you got anything to say, Matt? There, I cut you off. Sorry. That's fine. I was just going to say, I think with two great guests, I just want to say thank you, boys, for coming in. And there's a lot of value tonight. Yeah, thanks for giving up your time because time is precious. No worries. We'll go and have another few beers and let Ben really get going. Yeah, exactly. Let's get Dodge some food quickly. Blood sugar drop. Emergency stat. Holy crap. Thanks very much. You can wrap that. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is theendlesspursuitpodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram. Find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast.
Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.